Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If we were watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media and virtual production. Second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. Today, we're going to talk about Reality Scan. Uh, Reality Scan is from actually from Epic, and it's a free application that you can get uh, for your iPhone and uh, maybe Android. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure. Um, but uh, it's, uh, it's available uh, now for everyone. I've been testing it for the last six months. And so uh, I'll show people around a little bit and answer your questions about what it does and why it's important. And uh, so stay tuned for that. All right, let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Uh, Mitch, what do we have? Thank you, Alex. Our first in from Ari Block in Tel Aviv, Israel. Ari asks, what is a good way to get an XLR microphone into a camera with a 3.5 millimeter jack like the Sony a7 IV, especially if phantom power is required? Go ahead, Jeffrey. There's a couple different uh, pro, uh, hardware devices. The Ceramonic is the one that a lot of people use. I also am a big fan of uh, IK Multimedia. I couldn't find the one that I was going to wanted to show off, but this is the iRig Pro, which does a double uh, XLR. But there is an iRig HD, which I'll put into uh, Makana there. Uh, and basically what it is is a single XLR that you can run phantom power. And on the other end is a 3.5-millimeter uh, jack that you can plug right into a DSLR, camera, anything like that. Good, Courtney. Uh, the company that's been doing this for many, many years is called Beach Tech. Uh, they have a whole variety of products. This one, the little Audio Marvel for like $189. They go all the way up to, uh, they're designed specifically for doing this, connecting DSLRs uh, with uh, Phantom Power and XLR microphones. They have some that go all the way up to six or $700. So you can check it out on their website. Uh, they have a lot of solutions for doing just that. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I, you folks know that I'm a big fanboy of Sony products, but I will say that I never, ever, ever uh, used the three and a half inch uh, plug on my Sony cameras because the preamp um, and the audio is noisy. Uh, the best way to do that with a Sony camera is to buy uh, a Sony interface that goes into one of the hot shoes on top of the camera, the M1 or the digital interface. Uh, if you just want XLRs, the XLR K3M XLR works a treat. And or if you've got an M1, which I do my little uh, Sony uh, ZVE-10, that noise is me picking up. This little device has a shotgun on it, and it also has um, XLR connectors on it. And what it does is that it provides you with a digital connection uh, to the uh, to the camera as opposed to using the analog 3.5 uh, no noise. Sounds great. Um, I have it on my FX3 also. Uh, highly suggested. The only problem with this uh, ECM is that uh, the M1 adapter is a little squirrely. It, uh, it tends to be wiggle a wee bit too much. If you drop the camera, you're going to break it. I did that. <laughs> um, yeah, and I was just going to, I suddenly realized I could probably show it to you, but now I'm running around trying to figure this out. So um, I was going to show something in the future. But the the one that I use, of course, is a Mixpre 3. The Mixpre 3 has a quarter 20 on the top. So you, you, you don't really notice it from the way we use this, but the, um, but the quarter 20 is sitting on the top of the Mixpre. And I'm going to try to um, uh, show it to you here real quick. Let's see if it's my camera showing up. Maybe not. Uh, no, it's not showing up. All right. So um, uh, anyway, so the, uh, the Mixpre has it. One of the things that you'll notice is that it's it's flush. It's right across the top. There is actually an Allen wrench that you stick up into the bottom of the Mix Pre, and you can turn that quarter 20 into your camera so that you can attach the Mix Pre 
to the camera, and then you can attach the camera to the um, uh, then you can attach the camera to the tripod, and uh, and so that's going to put that mix pre right under it, like you would with a Beach Tech, except now you have thirty two bit float and uh, really good preamps, and and then you're just using the eighth inch at that point into the camera as a uh, reference, you know, just so you know what what happened there, but you're not actually going to use those records, or I wouldn't. So um, Zoom uh, has less expensive versions of that as well. Um, but the, if you're asking for a good or the best way to do it, I, mean, I think probably the Mix Pre is probably the best way to get three, uh, 3.5 into a, into a camera. Um, next question. And next question in from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. Morning, guys. What service, you, US, United States Postal Service, I'm trying to say, FedEx, et cetera, and process, insurance, et cetera, do you use to ship your remote kits to talent within the continental United States? For reference, kits include Insta360, SureMV7, Mac Mini cables, and Aperture tube lights. I go ahead, uh, Jeffrey. When we were shipping kits across the United States, I was using FedEx uh, mostly because of the fact that it was uh, you could uh, get a package on a Saturday or a Sunday if needed. Uh, I suppose UPS would have been my backup, but uh, FedEx has always been that way. And of course, uh, you can always put insurance on each package as you go. Yeah, and uh, the FedEx is definitely the way we've done it in the past, and it's, it can be, it gives us a lot of options between I want it first time overnight to um, freight, you know, and so if you can get ahead of it, it's not that expensive to send that whole kit there. I will say that we started with uh, cardboard boxes, then we went to Pelicans because we thought it'd be it'd be more rugged and it would it would be repeatable we went back to cardboard boxes and the reason we went back to cardboard boxes was specifically because it um, is cheaper to ship so we were paying uh, almost the price on a on a fast turn we were paying almost the price of the pelican case every single time we sent it so um so we we, we started doing the math and and have moved back towards um, doing these with cardboard boxes, um, and we buy new ones every, each time. So we're not sending, we're not reusing those cardboard boxes. They we we send them out, um, and the and what we do is we, and right now we're mostly most of the small kits that we're doing for the Michael Krasny show, for instance, are much smaller. But but even for the larger kits, we're going to be using uh, the cardboard boxes, and we send it with its own tape. So the tape you can peel off and put it back on. We send it with its own return label. <laughs> you know, so it's it's all like all the it's got a return label. It's got its own tape to go back. It's got instructions on how to make that happen, um, and then it's all well packed and clearly packed on how and how it needs to go. You know, to return to us, and um, it just has turned out to be. Uh, it's the, the the savings are significant, um, and it was actually we were inspired by that because we had a guest on here who does they do rentals of kits, and they show these really cool ones. What we want to do is actually start branding those boxes, but we haven't gotten we haven't got enough flow to make that work yet. But we might get stickers and put them on the outside. Go ahead, Mitchell. Would it be fair to say that the harder you're making for them to repack it and send it to you, the less likely you're going to get your stuff back? Okay. hundred percent. Like you have to uh, hand, you know, so the, the big thing is, is that there are, the, the clearer you make the box to return, the the better chance you're going to get to get it back. And, and, you know, a lot of times we're making calculations on a certain amount of loss, you know, in, in the smaller kits, on the bigger kits, we never lose them because <laughs> you know, the bigger kits we usually, because a lot of times what we do in the bigger kits is we FedEx it to somebody and then we have them deliver it to the vent, to the person and pick it up from the person because it's like three 1650s for the one that has a 6K camera and a mini, you know, it's got this this 6K camera and a mini and a USB and a ATEM and a whole bunch of other things to it. 
those ones we just have we have somebody hand deliver those to the to the person. But when we're mailing them out, uh, we're really really careful about um, the. We learned we we used to do this for Pixel Core. We did hundreds of these, and the and what we learned was that we could get our our loss rate started out at about um, like sixty percent. We weren't getting back, and they weren't nearly as big as these kits. These were a mic and a light and a and an earpiece. That was about it. Um, but we were only getting 40% of them back. We got that up to well over 90%. And that was just from um, packaging it in a way that wasn't tight. Like the temptation is to make it as tight as you can, but we packaged it in a way that it was open and easy for them to take it out. It was easy for them to open it. It said open here. Like, you know, you just interfaces. I mean, I have become obsessed with interface and interface is everything. And in this case, them being able to clearly open it and then be able to know, like having impressions where all the things need to be so that they understand, oh, even if you, you can take the pick and pluck out of a 1650 and put it into a cardboard box so that everything has like a little thing that, that, that they know where to put it. Um, so if they know where to put it back and if they have it, you'd be surprised at how many people didn't send something back because we didn't send them tape. They just didn't have any tape for the box, you know, and it just sat there forever of them going, oh, I'm going to get around to it because this is someone who just came for a show for an hour. Like, why are we making them do all this work? So, so we really we put the tape in and what you want to get is the, is there's fiber tape that has, that peels, that peels off the back. So you don't have to get it wet. You don't have to figure it out. It's only one piece. You just peel the two pieces off or at FedEx, we just grab one of those little rollers, you know, the little rollers with the little thing. And we just pack it in there because <laughs> then they just pull it across and then it's done. It costs $3, you know? And so we just put, put that in there and, and, and we're going to make that part of the, part of the case. So that can be done either way. And then printing out that return slip so they don't have to figure out how to return FedEx or anything else. So all they have to do is go to a FedEx and drop it off. Or in some cases, we literally send somebody to their house to grab it because it's just going to, they're like, oh, I don't have time for this. Because if, if you're doing VIPs, they'll be like, I don't have time to go to FedEx. And so we pay someone 50 bucks to you know, go over there and pick it up and take it back. So those are all the different options. But what we found was is that if we called them the day, be the day after the event and asked them to put it in the mail, and then a week after the event and asked them to put it in the mail, and then a month after that and asked them to put it in the mail, we would get it back. And we had literally a team, the team that was managing the boxes, they just had a tickler system that would just be like, we haven't gotten this box yet. Just call them back. And you'd be really nice about it. Hey, I'm just wondering if you were able to get that box in there. Um, and, uh, and again, we... We made calculations on the rentals back in Pixelcore. We made calculations on the rentals on how many we'd lose. So we were, you know, we were rent, the, we were giving them to the client for less than it would cost to buy it. Obviously, you want to do that um, considerably less, but but we would st we would account for the fact that we weren't going to get them all back and that they would break things. You know, break things was a, a bigger problem. Yeah, go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, I, I totally agree on everything, especially uh, the packing part, because the first thing when they open up that box, I want them to see the instructions on how yeah. to set up or whatever it is. So uh, I'm curious on that cardboard thing, uh, because I was thinking of actually, to lighten the load, actually using regular luggage. But my question to you is, how do you get past if it's a heavy thing? Because uh, Pelican cases usually have wheels, and a cardboard box wouldn't. They're just not, the, the bigger cases we're still sending in Pelican cases. So the, the big ones with the, the 6Ks and the teleprompters and the uh, tripods and everything else, those are going out in, in Pelican cases because, uh, because there's, to your point, you need the, you know, but the problem is the Pelican case exacerbates it to some degree. Like people getting the three 1650 case up, we had someone who, this poor woman that we sent it to, um, uh, you know, was not, not a, not a, not a weightlifter, <laughs> not, not, not real big. And, and, uh, she had three Pelican cases that had to go up three, three st story, three flights of stairs. And she was, 
super not excited about the kit after she got it up there. <laughs> so, so we, in the future, after that, she was the one person that, that had us go, well, we should send somebody to help, you know, get it up. And during COVID, we couldn't do that. We could drop it off on the outside and they had to pull it up. But as we, as COVID faded away, as far as a production concern, um, for the bigger kits, we usually want to send somebody there to help them set it up. Um, and, uh, um, to make sure that it, it gets done. And it's just a lot easier. Like, just let us, you know, and then you have people who don't want you, people to come into their house and, you know, we've actors that you can't, they won't even give you the address. So you have to send it to their assistant or send it to a PO box and then their assistant's going to pick it up and then put it together. And, and to your point, instructions are everything. Like we have a, uh, the way we've done it is we have a PDF that sh tells you how to put it together. We have a little movie that's hidden on YouTube that we send you a link. <laughs> Here's a link on how to, how to put together the kit. And it's, you know, it's all edited really quickly together. Um, or not edited quickly, but it's quick, it's very fast, sped up. It's like two minutes of how to, you can see how someone does it because we found the PDF, people would get lost. And then, um, and then finally for the bigger kits, we get on, even though they've had all of that, we tell them to go ahead and give it a shot, but then we get on a zoom with them and literally build it with them, you know, to, to help them put it together for the bigger ones. The smaller ones, no one has trouble putting them together. Like it's just the big ones that have, it's the... Turns out that the interface, and I haven't fixed this yet, the interface to the tripod, to the Benro tripods is for the teleprompter is hard. <laughs> like it's just, it doesn't fit, it fits really tightly and it, everyone gets caught on that one thing. Everything else is fine. And that's, all. and so we're, I'm looking at, I'm trying to, I've been buying these tripod heads that will snap in. You just set it down and it just snaps in, but none of them will hold the weight of the snap-in ones that are just automatic. You just drop them in and they just, snap on without any sliding forward or back uh can't handle the weight of the tripod on the camera <laughs> so, so we're so it's 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 a conundrum uh, i may end up just machining something so we'll we'll see how that goes uh next question serge blondin from montreal canada has a question is anyone looking for a more powerful raspberry a new device called cool pie mini hdmi 2.1 plus mini display port 8 core cpu and there's a link there to tom's hardware for finding Go ahead, John. Yeah, I scanned the, the specs. The specs look fine on this thing. The problem is you don't have the same development community that you have with the Raspberry Pi around this thing yet. It, is, it it a runs, different, is it a different language? It, you can run Android on it or you can run Linux on it. So, But it doesn't have the, you know, it's it's using different chips. So you're not going to have the same development community. Huh. huh. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be, that'd be problematic. Um, yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, there are a number of these higher level uh uh, Raspberry Pi, em, not really emulators, but uh, wannabes, a more expensive version of the Pi. But like uh, John said, they're not necessarily the same chip. And so they don't have the um, the same uh, environment around them. There is, uh, if you're looking for Raspberry Pi 4s, there is, I found a website uh, called Pi Locator, or our Pi Locator. And uh, it has all these different Raspberry Pis, where to locate them and links to where you can get them and the prices in euros. Do or we know American. what? Do we know what part of the pie is making it so hard to get? Is there a certain chip that is like we just don't know? I, we don't. I know don't what think that they've is. ever disclosed that. Yeah, I think also that uh, because of its price, it's thirty five dollar price, and you know nobody else has been able to to match that price for what you're getting. Um, all these others that have come out are, you know, $125, something like that. So they're full four to five times as expensive as the pies. But the pies, but the pies right the now pies, are really hard to get at that price, right? I mean, right, because they sold them all out because they were so cheap and they only manufacture them a couple of times a year, I think. And uh, 
and because of shipping problems too and because of the pandemic you know right and maybe because they're coming out of a factory in taiwan or something i don't know they were producing europe but uh uh i'm not sure where they're actually being made right right uh yeah go ahead jason I've been blown away uh, recently along these lines with Zimaboard, Zimaboard.com. Um, really, really powerful thing. And, you know, if you're going to go away from um, 100 and something, about 100 bucks. Um, and, these are, and these are in Windows, right? As well as Linux. It's Windows, Linux, um, let me see, uh, OpenWRT, PFSense, and Android. So basically anything you want to throw at it. Interesting. Uh, yeah, go ahead, uh, Mitchell. I'm on the lookout because uh, I've been trying to uh, build a bespoke um, PlayOut B device that's it's all pre-contained, even with a uh, touch screen on the top of it, because I think it would be cool to do it that way and just have it as a, uh, a hyperdeck, as, you know, essentially. So I've been looking and looking and looking, so I'll, I'll check this thing out, but I'd love it if there was an image built for it for uh, Linux. Yeah, I have to admit, I got my, my Raspberry... Uh... My, my four all set up for, I, I was putting my kit together and I got it all set up to do play out B and I had it all, you know, working and tied in. And then my son just started first robotics and he's learning how to program. And he's like, do you have any raspberry Pis?" And I was like, ah, here you go. <laughs> Cause I don't know where to get another one for the price. So I handed it to him. So now I got to get into something else. So go ahead, Courtney. Another thing I wanted to mention is there, if you're looking for alternatives to raspberry Pi, there's a, a good uh, site on YouTube uh, called Explaining Computers, a little bit eccentric guy called Christopher Barnett. And he reviews all of those uh, uh, Raspberry Pi lookalikes and feel-alikes, unboxes them and tests them. So that's a good place to start for looking for alternatives to Pi. And that's, a, sorry, I'm, you can hear me jumping into YouTube while I'm trying to find, you said Explaining um, explainingcomputers.com I think uh, there, right, went to the YouTube. And there's yeah, the, a, he has a YouTube channel yeah. and 887,000 people have found it before me <laughs> yes <laughs> Very he's good. a bit eccentric but he's a funny sounds guy good. sounds like my kind of guy um, next question from Richard Lavery in Belfast we've got a partially transferred ProRes file the transfer fi failed close to the end that we cannot open. Is there a way to open it to retrieve data even if transfer was incomplete? The file is 800 gigabytes large, 90% of the transfer. Go ahead, Courtney. Oh, there are ways, but it's probably more expensive than transferring it again. Um, it's a lot of work and depends on what file system you were transferring it into and what it was being written to and how, uh, you know, how populous, how populated that disk was when it was writing to it, because uh, it may be scattered in sectors all over the disk. So recovery might be difficult without expending a lot of time and money and by probably be cheaper just to transfer it again. And go ahead, Serge. I understood the question differently. I thought the, the question was more to transfer from one side to another side. If it's it. the yeah, if it's the case, and you have one good copy of it, use a software that will be able to check at the block level in do a sync. Like LucidLink would be a nice solution, I think, to be able to put the file there, and the recipient hand will not download the uh, the part that they already have. They would just check which part needs to be redundant. Okay, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, the, the best bet is always transfer with a sum check so that it uh, makes sure that what it was copying 
uh, got everything, and if it didn't, um, whether or not it can actually repair that data fork that uh, got hosed somehow in the transfer process. Yeah, it it, it is. Um, we have tried to recover ProRes files in the past, and it, it has worked at times. The one the one that the one that we've been able to recover with specialized software is a key pro. This is why we don't have key pros anymore. Um, the key pro, if you pulled it out without closing the deck, so the deck has a close button and then an eject button, and you had to close the deck and then pull it out. And if you pulled it out before that, it would like the you could see the data was there, but you couldn't get to it. Um, and so we learned to uh, uh, there, you, there's a piece of software that will recover that because it's 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 the whole file's there. But if the whole file's not there. Um, you know, the only reason I would recover that is if someone doesn't have the other side of that file. Um, the, I would not make any other attempt. The amount of t- time it will take to fix it will be astronomical in cost compared to just having them retransfer it, even put it on FedEx. <laughs> you know, like it would be better than, than, than what you're talking about. Uh, the chances of you getting even the 80% or 90% that's there is pretty low. Um, next question. From Dan Huber in Erie, Pennsylvania. Dan asked, AMC Theaters announced in 2023 you'll be able to book a theater for a Zoom room meeting. What would those theaters need with mics and cameras to be successful? Good, Courtney. Well, I haven't seen one yet. I've I've heard I saw the I saw this article when it came out, but I figured they would just put in a couple of PTZ cameras at the front of the auditorium, looking back, and use their big screen uh, and with a computer. Of course, they have computers in all the um, uh, projection booths of those theaters uh, to do the DTS and do the other uh, play that play out the commercials and stuff, the pre pre-roll stuff. So they just put zoom up on that feed a couple of PTZs in and get uh, three or four handheld wireless mics uh, to handle the questions from the crowd, I guess. Yeah. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah. I agree with Courtney. It's going to be the dreaded hybrid event. Um, you're going to have to people line up to react with what's going on on the screen. And it, it sort of takes away from the whole experience uh, things will be rolling along really well, and then somebody comes up to the microphone and starts speaking slowly or confusedly, or maybe they're just plain nervous, and uh, it doesn't work well for the whole experience. Yeah, we've done a lot of these, um, and not not necessarily to AMC's theaters, but to venues, you know, venue to venue. And, um, you know, for an ongoing thing, I probably, I agree with Mitchell that I probably wouldn't open the mics very often if I didn't have to. Um, not not so much from a technical perspective, but be, from a creative perspective, um, listening to average people ask questions is, you know, like a, it's painful, you know? And so so the um, there are times though, when you wanna have that, that one-on-one interaction, you wanna have a discussion with that person. And sometimes it's another expert, content expert. We've done ones where a con- content expert stands up on the other side and they're having you know, a thoughtful discussion with the speaker and that actually worked pretty well. And so you got to figure out how to make that work. Now, most of the stuff we've done in the past has not been with Zoom. It's been with, um, we have done some with Zoom in theaters, but but mostly it's been um, uh, Google Hangouts. And so uh, you th- you'd think that you'd want to put the camera under the screen, but that looks really weird. Um, so what you want to do is put the camera above the screen. And then what you do is you put the person speaking, when you're putting them where people should look, you kind of edge it a little bit higher on the screen. And what'll happen is, is that people will, um, uh, they'll, they'll look up and their eye contact, their eye to eye will actually not be too bad, you know, as it, as it looks, as it looks there. Um, now, if you have a speaker that's coming in, that's not at a theater, then you actually want to go the opposite direction. You want the speaker to, you want, don't want to give them a t- in Teratron, you want to put a monitor underneath the camera 
That way they're looking a little under the camera. And when they look a little under the camera, it actually looks like they're looking right at the folks in the venue. Um, and so uh, it's a little different with screens because of the way that they're shifted down compared to a venue. Um, but the but the main thing, you're, you're, the, the, the biggest trouble you end up with is this audio because in each one of these theaters, the there's audio all around and it has, a, you know, getting all the audio can echo cancellation, everything else to work well, um, it, you know, turns out to be a thing. The other thing that you don't think about until you start doing it is that a theater is really dark when you're watching it. <laughs> so the person standing up to talk is really dark too. So how do you light them um, to make that happen? And one of the things that we've done for that is to, you have some light that, so it's a little bit lit, it's not fully off. And then we're using the Canon uh, ME, ME200s, or if you really want to go crazy, the ME20s. ME20s are really expensive, so you can be really serious about it. But I would, I think that if I was AMC, I would really think about that. Um, only because the ME20s can see, in, literally you can't see your hand in front of you and it'll be shooting a video. And so it's like 4 million, I think it's like 4 million or 3.5 million ISO. And, um, and so you can put very little light into the, into the theater and still have everyone well enough lit that they can have a two-way communication with them. I think that I saw the, the press release. I think that the, what they're really focusing this on is the smaller theaters at AMC. It's at 75 to 150 people. And that's, a, that's those little postage stamp theaters that are on the end, not the main theaters that they're putting in there. So, and I think that they could, AMC could probably dedicate those to them because the uh, amount of inventory that they have is, is um, precipitously dropping. So they have too many screens and not enough content for them. So they can probably dedicate um, theaters to this without too much trouble um, because they they don't have enough uh, inventory for the for the screens that they have. Um, so it, so it's, it's I think it's a good idea. I think it's and we'll see. We'll, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. Go ahead, Jeffrey. It would be a good idea, but uh, AMC has just uh, they because uh, we have a theater. Uh, was it uh, Robert Redford? The arts uh, cinemas opened it up like 20 years ago. Uh, AMC took it over, and now they're closing. At the end of the year, it's going to close out and turn into a bank. And uh, they're they're doing that right across the country from these small art theaters that they bought, which well, not, would have been perfect for these Zoom rooms. So maybe. Um, I mean, the, the 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 art theaters are probably not the best ones for what they're doing. And I think that what they what they're going to end up using is. In a 16 AMC 16, they're going to take a one or two of the small theaters that they have at the far end because on an AMC 16, they probably have four large theaters, eight medium-sized theaters, and four postage stamps. You know, and but and these, uh, go ahead. But with these small ones, the the they, the small ones usually have a stage attached to them. So if they they can do a person really? on stage and they do the audience. Oh, you mean yeah. the artsy ones? Yeah. The RC ones, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. The other thing is uh, the one advantage that these theaters have is they're soundproofed because they're usually yeah. theater yeah. upon theater upon theater, I know. and you got to You get it? Well, yeah, kind of, but you Not still really. got to You still got to mute the sound from the uh, from the IMAX theater to the regular theater for the, sure. The yeah, the the well, I mean, even with the other, uh, the other theaters, AMC's not been a hundred percent on that. You know, if you have Terminator or or Avatar next to you, you're in trouble. Like, you know, if you're doing like you, you'll hear the. Woo, 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 woo. They're not. They're. They're. You're. You're right that they are largely good, but they are not soundproof. They haven't been. They don't float these theaters, and so, um, so that that is a bit of a problem. But I do think a lot of us have looked at these theaters for a decade, going, wow. I can do some crazy things with this theater, you know, and, and, uh, and so it'll be really interesting to see if they, um, you know, where they, where they go with that. The, 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 the interesting thing will be is to see if zoom in those theaters finds a way to increase, you know, the amount of bandwidth that they put into the zoom call, because 
you know, when you take a call that and you put it on a screen that big, uh, poor Zoom connections um, show up. I mean, they, they look a lot softer than on our little screens. <laughs> so, so the 1080p is fine. Like you can totally make 1080p work on a big screen. It's just the quality of those pixels will be the next, um, the next thing. And, and any kind of jumping or frame dropping will be a thing. Um, next question. But it also oh, yeah, it also on. works. The, it also works with the the fact that you know if they decide to do a cross country, you know we have an office here, an office here, office here, having the Zoom, and maybe they can even do a watch party together, watch yeah. the next Marvel movie or something like that. With that, I don't think watching a Marvel movie. You, what you could do is do a pre show and and do something. You know, IMAX has been doing some of those where you have a pre show where the actors talking a little bit and then play a movie. Um, the the tricky part there is linking like what goes onto the theater screen and then swapping back to the, what it's going to play out to the, to the DCP. Now, next question. Next question in from James Fosling in Minneapolis, Minnesota. As a media producer, how do you travel internationally? I'm ignorant of such experiences. My impressions have only been through the media and want to understand broader cultures. And how could I represent those experiences? Good, Javier. Uh, when I travel internationally, or even when I go to a new city, I always try to understand that. Try to understand the mode I can of the place. So I started with the brother picture. That's like the official, like Lonely Planet, or like official guides. Uh, then I'll, I turn to TripAdvisor or all of those places when you get what tourists go and uh, like what they get out of the other place. Uh, then I switch to Google or Yelp or all the places where the locals are leaving the reviews. I'd like to know where to go and what to expect. Uh, and that gives me a broad idea of what should I do. And then when I get there, I start asking people like, not where, where do you recommend me going? Because that's like a, they send you to the most fancy or the most uh, like, you know, extreme different thing they have in the city. But like, where do you like to celebrate? Where do you go when you want comfort food? Uh, and then in those places tend to be less touristy and that where you can speak to people and they don't treat you like a tourist. They start like treating you like an expat or like someone that's living in the city. Because if you understand how it's to live in that city, I think it's when you can uh, start producing things for your for your own or like whatever. But uh, understanding the culture and that's my, 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 my road. Yeah, go ahead, Jeffrey. So uh, I... A couple weeks ago, we just went uh, went to Barcelona and then took a cruise and went right down the boot of Italy. And uh, of course, the first week Barcelona was media production for me, and my wife was she's she was just a champ trying to figure out what to do afterwards. Because usually for me, it's I hit the city, I do the work, I get out. And this in this case, we did a little bit more than that, which was great. Uh, she uses uh, Reddit a lot because the subreddits uh, are just amazing with the information that we could go. You know, I went to Korea, South Korea several times, but then I didn't really experience it until she went to South Korea because she did all that research and uh, and went from there. The other thing is, yeah, it, you, you're going if you're going for media or doing something, then there's always going to be somebody that you can uh, talk to before that to get the ideas. But uh, if you have to go fresh, uh, I'd say uh, Reddit, because you can also find people that are in the in the in the country that might be uh, able to help you and uh, walk you around, be your guide. There you go, Jeffrey. 
that was Alan Courtney. Courtney. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah. Um, it's by the way, what happens is well. Anyway, on the back end, we can give you a little inside, inside baseball. If they don't, if folks don't keep up, I don't know where I'm at. You know, like I'm working, I'm thinking about a bunch of things, and I just look up and go to the next person that's opened. <laughs> go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, a couple of things to think out. It's been a while since I've done a lot of international travel, but if you're a media producer and you're traveling with a bunch of expensive equipment that may not be yours, uh, you want to make sure you have a carnet all arranged so that the equipment could get in and out of different countries without being attached as uh stuff that uh, requires import duties to be deposited for it because I've traveled into countries where they want $35,000 worth of import duty to be posted in cash before they will release that equipment. So uh, if you have your international carnets arranged, the other thing to uh, worry about is uh, vaccinations and vaccines because check the WHO website uh, for vaccine requirements and travel for whatever countries you're traveling to because if you arrive in a country where they're requiring, let's say, a vaccine for yellow fever, and you don't have that vaccination, which takes, which takes several days to take effect or a week to take effect, they will throw you in quarantine until, and not let you escape until that vaccine is has uh, taken hold and you've been vaccinated. So make sure that you're uh, up on all your shots before you travel. Go ahead, Jeffrey. One last thing, and that is uh, to the Courtney's thought, uh, visas. And uh, make, making sure that you have the right visa when you enter into a country, because some will do work visas, some will do uh, 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 regular uh, travel visas, and you could you could take a step in the wrong direction, and then all of a sudden your visa is no longer uh, good. Yeah, and, and there's a little little trip. That, not that this has ever happened to me, <laughs> but you, you'll have a tendency to want to if you're only going to be there for a week for a job. You have a tendency not to get a business visa. You just have a tendency to just stay tourist visa because you just want to get in, get out. It's the lowest, the least amount of trouble. Problem with that is you cannot show up with a tourist visa and a carnet. <laughs> like you know, like you can't. Like those two things don't go together. And someone at customs goes, "Hey, what's going on here?" And then you spend three hours talking to folks about what you're doing, and then you, you get through. But it, it's a big, it's a big thing. Just in case you're wondering, I've done, I've already tested that for you. Um, the uh, uh, the uh, again, carnets for the bigger stuff. Um, in smaller countries, you have to worry about that you go into, not smaller countries, but countries that don't use carnets. So like Brazil is a bigger country, but it doesn't do carnets. And so we, quote unquote, we tend to, quote unquote, smuggle the gear in, which means that we just use regular luggage and uh, and get in, and we also rent a lot more from in Brazil. Like, so we'll take in core aspects that we don't think we can find in the country, just in regular to me luggage, turns out to be really good ones. Little carry-ons tend to be really good because they're really light, and then we refit them all. And we usually find that that works okay unless they have a big x-ray that they're kind of forcing you into. Um, you'll find certain times are easier than others. Ones that are busy, you tend to not, no one that tends to ask. Um, and, and so the uh, you also really want to, if you're doing production, you want a fixer. So we hire fixers in most countries that are there, there to, they already know the place. They know what the rules are. They know where all the rental houses are. They they know what the, you know, all those things. And they can get you a camera or another camera operator or a crew or a whatever. And um, they're super useful. And they also tell you where all the good places are to eat <laughs> because they live there and they know what production's looking for. So um, we've got some great fixers around the world that we use pretty regularly for those kinds of things. Um, so those are, um, that's, a, that's also a good, good place to go down. I, the other thing is, is that my personal stuff fits into a backpack and a, carry-on period like yeah, i can go on my carry-on forever you know like i literally take 
little wool light packets that I can I can wash my clothes in the sink. And I have a very, if you find that if you wash your clothes in the sink and then you roll them up in the towels, squeeze them, unroll them, and then hang them up, they'll be done by the next day. <laughs> you know, so, so, and I go through a lot of towels uh, to, to wash stuff. So, um, but the big thing that we do is I have safety days. We get in early and leave late. So you have a day before the show that we get into. And the reason we do that is if anything went wrong, literally for larger events, one team at, lands with enough time so that when the second team is leaving, you know, six hours after the first team landed. And the reason we do that is so that if, if a case doesn't make it, the second team grabs onto something and brings it with them. And then on the other end, we usually have two people that are on the safety day on the other end of the event. So if archives need to be still uploaded, if there's some other issue that needs to be sorted out, if something didn't get returned on the day of the event, we have an extra day. And so when the, what you do, of course, is you, every, you know, I'm, I'm often that person and uh, you do everything you can to make sure everything works so that you have a, a free day in Paris. <laughs> you, know, and you just walk around. And, uh, and I've had a lot of great extra safety days. Um, but then, you know, about once out of every four or five, you are working that day, you know, fixing something that didn't, that didn't go right and it's, and it's worth it. Um, next question. Jonas Donald from Stuttgart, Germany. What are the top factors to consider when choosing hardware for live streaming? Uh, go ahead, um, Jeffrey. So for me, it's uh, it's uh, it's size of the event, and then of course uh, how fast you have to set things up. Like for instance, uh, going to Barcelona. By the way, my Barcelona trip, my luggage did not make it till day three, and that included all my production gear, and I did have extra gear in my bag to pull off what I was doing. And I did have help from the community uh, at the uh, at the event that uh, gave me a couple cameras to use too, which was great. But at Barcelona, that was a, that was a large event, so I could bring in a higher-end uh, piece of equipment. When I'm going to CES, it's got to be small and compact and quickly set up, quick teardown. Uh, and if it doesn't live stream, you just got to go with the flow, record, and, and then I do what's called a uh, delayed live stream. So I'll record it, and then I'll get to a spot where the internet is decent, and then I'll send it to a machine that will live stream it from there. Yeah, for I mean, for my stuff, mostly I'm worried about being rackable, <laughs> you know, for the most part. Like I want, I want everything to go into cases. Um, so we 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 use a lot of the a, a lot of racks for that for that type of thing. Um, also, uh, it needs to be 110, 240 or 110, 220, depending on how you have it there so that I can plug it in anywhere. Generally, I'm looking for, um, you know, NEMA C, C13, uh, or C14 receptacles so that I can plug it in. It's really, you can get those C13s, um, anywhere in the world with the right plug. <laughs> so you just go to, you just go to a hardware store and you buy the plugs you need. Um, for your hardware, um, obviously stability. I, for most of my hardware, I want an FPGA to be the most complicated thing in the app, in, in the, you know, in the um, piece of hardware. Uh, I don't really like to deal with software um, that's not going right within live streaming. So um, I, I will occasionally use a, a PC for that or dedicated hardware for things. I don't like hardware to do lots of different things at the same time because um, it tends, you know, you tend to have overruns where something's taking too much resources and taking it away from something else that I need. I'll go at Javier. I think that for live stream also it's very important to be something that's reliable and that's been extremely tested. Uh, I, I when I'm doing things that I are like you have different takes and especially if there's no client that you're gonna edit later, you can test things and try new things. But live stream has to be the thing that has worked a thousand times and it's gonna work no no matter what. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I 
I think that I was talking to someone about how I approach this. And, and for me, it's very much, I, I do crazy shows, but I do them very conservatively. You know, so I, I you know, I'm, I'm very conservative about everything. I'm not trying to test things with my pipeline. You know, I'm already doing something that probably no one's ever done before. And so I don't want to, I don't need to make it, I don't need to add more variables that don't need to be there. Next question. Kyle Hammond from Chicago, Illinois. Kyle wants to know, what do you use to edit large SRTs and or ITTs? There are a number of free online options, but most have time limitations. So uh, what he's asking about, SRT is two different things, which makes it hard. An SRT can be secure, reliable transport for video, but because he's asking for ITTs too, these are different formats to manage captions. So SRT is typically what you would download or upload to um, to the uh, uh, to YouTube. Um, ITTs tend to be for iTunes, and so they tend to, I, I believe, if I remember correctly, um, I haven't dealt with ITTs a lot. A lot of what I deal with is VTTs. VTTs are oftentimes things that we dice up and make part of an HLS uh, package that we're delivering. Um, so you can have a couple of these different formats that you're dealing with there. Um, to edit them, uh, it depends on what you're doing. If you're editing timing or whether you're editing the actual captions themselves, the captions themselves, it, most of these are just text formats. You can literally open them, <laughs> just edit them there, uh, edit, you know, cause you're just gonna, there's just gonna be a row of text that you can go through. So if you're trying to find something to fix it, it's fine to edit the timing. Um, the, um, that becomes more complicated. So most of these tools have been built into the editing tools. Now I haven't used Premiere's, although I hear that it's pretty good. I don't know, I haven't played with it. There are caption tools that are within uh, Resolve. The best caption tools um, in an editing package, in an NLE that I've worked with is Final Cut. Uh, the team, I don't know what happened internally, but they just decided they were gonna spend an enormous amount of resources on making great caption editing tools. And so I really like, like a lot of times you have five or six languages, or let's just say you have six languages, you can bring those all into Final Cut, they'll all show up as little, um, they'll show show up as tracks, like a video track, just a little shorter. And you can sit there and read time when they're up, you can um, you can edit them, you can then export them in lots of different formats. Um, so, so that's, Final Cut is a great one to do it embedded. Um, it resolves getting better. I've heard Premiere is good, but I haven't used it. The other thing is the Telestream makes a variety of them. Don't get Mac captions because I don't think they've updated it and I don't know how long. I had a, I used to have a laptop that just sat on some very old version because it wasn't, they were still stuck in 32-bit and it's really just barely running. But that's what I used to do heavy-duty work on captions, Mac caption. But I believe that the PC version of it continues to be updated and is is better. Mac captions may have been updated in the last couple of years. I haven't. I stopped trying to make it open because <laughs> it was going so slow. Um, so, so, but, uh, but Telestream has some tools there. And those Telestream's tools plus now Final Cut and a text editor are really what I've used for some pretty large events for, for captions. Uh, next question. From Douglas Carmichael. We all know that Neumann microphones, uh, but has anyone had experience with Neumann <clears throat> headphones or studio monitors the NDH20, and there's a link to it, looks like an appealing upgrade from the Sennheiser HD300 Pro I have now. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, I always say listen to them, and if you like them, buy them. Um, Neumann, of course, is owned by Sennheiser, so they share intellectual property since 1991. So they may be the same drivers inside those headphones <laughs> as your Sennheisers. <laughs> so you don't know, but uh, they may. Be, it it might just be marketing differences between the two. They're all manufactured in Germany these days. Um, but um, listen to them, and if you like them, buy them. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. 
Yeah, what Courtney just said. Uh, the, the thing, Douglas, is you can't tell from appearance what something's going to do. It's way too subjective. You need to have personal experience with them. I love the looks of the, the Neumann speakers also, but I've never heard them, so I wouldn't consider them. So you should probably, unless you can hear them in, a, uh, in, in an environment somewhere where they can uh, give you an A-B comparison between your beloved Sennheisers, I would just let it go. Next question. Next question from James Fosling in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Are there any sonic differences between a 3.5 millimeter and quarter plug? Go, Jason. It's a much more solid connection. Um, I wouldn't trust a 3.5 millimeter um, plug in professional work if I could help it. Anytime you've got better separation, it tends to be a, a, a better thing. But, of course, it's still non-locking. Um, I would go with XLR if possible. And go ahead and uh, Courtney. I got one word for you, schmutz. You get um, schmutz is more of a problem on a 3.5 millimeter plug than it is on a quarter inch plug, since you've got more, as Jason said, more surface area uh, that, that corrosion can and schmutz can build up on, uh, uh, or rather it can be more. Courtney, your answer was so area, much better. Area. Anyway, watch out for the schmutz because the 3.5 has less surface area to get dirty. Uh, next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida asked, who's going to Zoomtopia behind the scenes about full production for hybrid events later today? Uh, I, you know, a couple of us, I think are looking at, I have meetings right after this meeting, <laughs> right after this. So I, I, I might try to jump in for a little bit of it, but it looks really good. And they did a lot of great work and, you know, we all know Sam and the, and the team. So it should be pretty interesting to see. So hopefully uh, a couple of us will jump in and give us a report. Um, next question. Jack Cannon from Phoenix, Arizona asked, looking to get a network attack storage with an SFE Plus to work with Mac. I already have a Synology, but I'm looking to expand. Bigger Synology or is QNAP better? Any other brands to consider? Uh, go ahead, Jason. Bigger Synology. QNAP is rife with all sorts of security issues. Um, it just kind of seems to be getting worse. Now, of course, there's, um, there's no better defense than having a, a good firewall and what have you with uh, respect to an ass. But um, yeah, I no Synology. Yeah. The other one that uh, Doug Ferguson likes a lot is um, 44 drives, which is really getting a lot larger. If you want to get much bigger. Yeah. 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 He's, he's been really happy with those, but otherwise I would stick with Synology. Uh, next question. Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana asks, what is your criteria for VPN usage for production? I've used them to do bridge hardware and software and even to get around filtering and bandwidth shaping, but I'm always mindful of the overhead. Yeah, go ahead, Serge. I use a VPN to connect to RDP machine uh, without exposing the RDP to the external uh, one. Uh, the one I prefer is just called Tailscale. It's a small VPN software that is peer-to-peer, -peer, so that way it's easy to install and it's not requiring any hardware. Yeah, and a lot of what we've done with VPNs is is to really make sure that we can control all our hardware uh, remotely. So that the you know basically we're using Meraki systems, and a lot of times there'll be a Meraki that's sitting in there, and it it is handing off everything. So when, as soon as you plug the kit in, it immediately is in our network, and once it's in our network, we have con control over everything, and we just know what the IPs are for that kit, um, and they're all ten dots, and it's just a lot easier for us to to work. So. Um, I, we've been pretty happy with using that. I mean, of course, if you're using tons of bandwidth, you have to look at what your 
stateful limit is, you know, within that. So if it's, you know, you may be, you may have access to a gig connection, but your Meraki or Ubiquity or whatever you're using may only be 50 megs, you know, 50 megs a second or 100 megs a second. So you have to um, pay attention to, to what those are. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, Alex, you mentioned the use of handheld mics in those smaller theaters. Without a dedicated audio engineer, would you use a Dugan to manage the mics? Now go ahead, Mitchell. Well, it depends how many mics you have. Uh, if you have one person with a mic uh, uh, asking questions of the group, then you wouldn't need a Dugan mixer. But if you had two aisles and two people with two mics plus a post on the stage, now you're starting to think about uh, some, you know, some technology to give things a hand. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and you might want to have uh, you want to have a Dugan in there and a feedback eliminator because you're probably going to pipe that mic through the PA system as well, so the rest of the theater can hear you ask your questions as well. So, you want to have feedback management, uh, and that can be automated to a large degree. Next question: Roy Myers in Bel Air, Maryland, asked Josh, "How's the Kilo Show preparation coming, and how can I participate?" Go ahead, Josh. Well, thanks for the question, Roy. I see you're a concerned person for the Kilo Show. Kilo Show planning and preparation is going fantastic. We have a large group of um, dedicated individuals that are meeting regularly. In fact, we'll have a meeting today. And the way that you can participate is there are two Discord channels that you can participate in. So we have a discussion channel where we're suggesting things to be voting items. And we have a voting uh, item in the Discord thread, actually, that is looks like this. So you can add your little emoticon to say whether you like an idea, you don't like an idea, or there's a little hammer and wrench that means that you're willing to work on something and put something together for us. Uh, we've also simplified it too. If you notice, some of them have a little film strip. Those are little self videos that you can submit to us. For example, um, what is an experience that you've had in office hours or after hours? Um, what does office hours mean to you or unforgettable experiences that you'd like to tell us about? So we're putting together different segments. Uh, the other way that you can participate if you're asked uh, to be a part of the panel, we're creating uh, various different segments and we're curating the panel with the appropriate people for uh, for those particular segments. Unfortunately, we can't have everyone on the panel, but um, if you're if you're asked, then uh, join us uh, on the panel. However, we will have um, an enhanced version for you to participate in chat since the panel is limited. We're going to have um, a special attention to calling out uh, the chat comments so you can participate there. And of course, we're going to have Mukana tags for every one of the segments. So we're looking forward to it. We have a large group of editors. However, um, the chance to participate in your own self videos is coming to a close. In three days, we're going to stop uh, taking in our videos and we're, our editors are gonna get to work. Uh, Dave Trotman is heading up our editing crew and there's several editors that we have uh, lined up to be able to put in some videos. Uh, we're gonna have three different types of media content. Uh, we really want to prioritize the conversation. We don't want to sanitize this with a lot of media, although we do have a lot of things that remind us of some very nostalgic uh, things that we've had in the past. And by the way, if you have some contributions, feel free to, to show, share those with us in the next few days. But we're going to have uh, some videos with audio uh, that kind of kick off the section. We'll play those uh, inside the, the sessions themselves. Those are going to be short. We're not going to limit uh, the the communication that we have and, and the question and answer chat. 
We're also going to have some things that people are making, like time lapses and other things that don't have any audio. We can sort of put them in and play them side by side so we can continue our conversation. And we're going to have a little longer videos that come in between the segments. Uh, these are videos that either set up the next uh, section we're going into or something that we play out that, uh, you know, kind of uh, tell us about the section we just had. This will enable us to to change out the panel. So we're going to have the appropriate folks that we can for the different sections. So things are going great. There's three more days in which you can uh, participate and add some of your suggestions or jump into the, the discussion thread and tell us what you want to see for our thousandth show. That's great. It's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> I think it's going to be a good show. A uh, lot of work going into it. So really kudos to the team and uh, can't wait to see it. Can't wait to be part of it. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael asked, have any of you noticed a sonic difference between active and passive direct boxes? Go ahead, Jeffrey. Uh, well, now that you highlighted sonic, I'm not exactly sure. My answer is uh, basically I hate passive passive boxes. They always fail. They, they just I'd never have good luck with uh, with passive box if I get active as as much as I can um, with a battery backup with a uh, with a plug option too. Um, but uh, yeah, that's my that's my answer. Yeah, go ahead, Doug Mitchell. Uh, difference between an active and a passive direct box is they're usually used to uh, take an unbalanced input and create a balanced output. Uh, with an active one, it's being done electronically with a balancing circuit in it that requires power. And with a passive unit, it's generally a transformer, like a high-quality Jensen transformer that's doing that. They all add their own sonic differences, and I can't just say, well, this sounds better than the other. Uh, but generally, um, if I'm doing a direct box, uh, I prefer the, uh, uh, the passive with a, with a high-quality transformer in it. Um, it's just that that sound of a uh, high-quality high quality transformer uh, does uh, add a little bit of coloration, but it's a good stuff. Active, it could be all over the place. Next question. Next question uh, is for me. Speaking of cinemas uh, hosting Zoom meetings, could we consider finding a donor and trying an office hours version? Uh, I'm sure we could probably figure something out. <laughs> Go ahead, Mitchell. Well, I, I would think that maybe we should show them how we do it our way and uh, our find way. a place. It, our, way. our way and um and do it and uh, see how the, what the results of course you know we're promoting hybrid events so i know how that can go but um i have a a local customer that's a a large cinema operator uh that might be a good candidate for trying it out so if if the group wants to do it so um I'd the like biggest challenge with all of this so talk talk to your to the cinema operator that you know is bandwidth how do we get bandwidth to the theater? Because in the malls, you can get to the MPO, but getting past that turns out to be like weeks and sometimes months of negotiation. So um, if you find a theater that has bandwidth, let us know. Yeah, he does. Thanks. And it's freestanding. It's not in a mall. It's a freestanding IMAX facility. And what? I've seen, often I've seen- IMAX? Parks. What? Ooh. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's talk. It'll be fun. Be fun. Um, all right. Uh, next question. Next question from Talalik Lopez Waterman in Pittsburgh, PA. Now, does anyone know what the escape character is for a string and companion for things like line breaks? Jason. Um, yeah, it's uh, forward slash n, and uh, I'll put a I'll put a link in Mukana for you. Man, Talalik, 
Did we miss a, did we miss each other by like a day? Did you just end up there? Because I think yesterday you were in New York or something. I saw him last week. He is truly everywhere. Oh, man. I saw him in Wilmington for dinner um, like, there's a week gonna be ago. Like a, there's Where's Waldo? There's Where's Tlaloc? You know, so uh, so I think that I was just in Pittsburgh. We must have missed each other. But I like literally when I say I was just in Pittsburgh, I was in Pittsburgh yesterday morning. All right. Anyway, um, next question. Uh, we're oh, ready to we're, go we're ready. on to second hour. We just went so fast. <laughs> All right. No, we, um, I was not paying attention to time. Uh, and the reason I wasn't is because uh, something that's worked forever stopped working right now. In fact, it was working before the show. My My phone... When I plug my phone in, it, shows, it usually shows up on the switcher, and it is not. Um, so I'm going to try to figure out how I'm going to show you what I'm going to show you here. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, it was it was literally, I tested it this morning. It was working fine, and then I plugged it in and to the exact same cable, and my phone is no longer uh, willing to provide video to my, uh, to my switcher. So we'll see. Anyway, so the... Um, uh, I, um, so what we're going to talk about is Reality Scan. Reality Scan is the uh, the new software, relatively new for everybody else, but a, a new software that is um, from Epic. You can download it for free. Um, again, does anyone know whether it's available on Android? I know it's available on iPhone, um, but I'm not sure certain if it's available on Android. So no, I think it's completely closed. Yeah, so so it's available on the iPhone, which is ironic for Epic to only be available on the iPhone. But anyway, but. Uh, the what it does is it it is a photogrammetry app. So there's two big photogrammetry apps on the iPhone. Um, the first one is Polycam, which I use a lot, and the second one is is this Reality Scan. And I haven't talked about Reality Scan that much because it was in beta for six months. So um, and so the and I think I have a I'm going to have to kind of do this in small pieces because again I was just getting setting things up um, before uh, before the show. Like right before it, and I realized suddenly that this isn't, it's not working. Um, let's see here. Uh, let's see if I can find, I took a picture, and there we go. I did have a backup, uh, kind of a backup here. So I'm going to explain how this, uh, how this works here. Let's see. I'll need to use screen share. I'm just warning the folks on the back end here that, uh, let's go. All right. So if you see that, um, this is this is a reality scan. This was a, a quick test that I did for today. <laughs> so I did this yesterday, and I'll show you the results here in a second. Um, so what what you're seeing there is um, those are all what what's cool about reality scan, and I think that I think that the user interface is really really nice. So I think that it's a really great uh, user interface, and what it's showing you there is, um, and I'll show you the, the model here in a second. Um, but what it's showing you there is a um, is a point cloud, and this is where it's green is where it says I've got plenty of data for those points. Where it's yellow, it's like ah, and red, it's like I don't know what's going on over there. So um, so anyway, so it gives you this kind of heat map, so to speak, that's going to allow you to to figure that out. And so um, and now what it also does is while you're shooting, it's got a little bit of an AR thing built into it. It shows you where your images were. So if you pull back, you'll see where all your images were. In relationship to that um, uh, to that piece, and so um, the now you'll notice that it looks kind of cut off. It did grab points all over the room. What you can do is set your the area. So once you start shooting, you can say, "Okay, I only want you to pay attention to this." You can squeeze a box in. That's what I was going to show you, but I'm having a little trouble with my computer. We'll see if we can figure this out. Um, 
quickly. Um, so uh, anyway, but what you can do, what, what it's going to do there is it's going to kind of grab that area. Um, it's showing you where all those, those are all the photos. It, it has a limit of 200 and I tend to just use 200 photos for everything. Like if I'm going to use something in doing this, um, you know, then I just do 200 photos. Um, and so, and, uh, and build that out. And so um, you have your capture and, and it basically you just keep on tapping on it. It had in the earlier beta, it had something auto captured and uh, Polycam still does that, but um, uh, it currently is just manual. So you just keep tapping it um, to, to make that work. Um, from there, you, um, so you take that, you take this data, you take all of the point cloud there and you hit go and it'll, it basically sends it um, to the cloud. So it uploads all those images to the cloud. It then produces a 3D model um, and gives it back to you. And then then usually I publish them on Sketchfab. So I think it's, if you look for like Alex B. Lindsay on Sketchfab, you'll see me, the, the results of me fiddling with this uh, up there. And I'll, and I'll show you some of those in a second here. Um, but that is, you know, basically, and you, if you have questions, go ahead and raise your questions. I'm, I'm going to do the best I can here. Again, I'm kind of flying with one engine here today. I apologize for that. Um, the, um, uh, but the, the interesting thing about it is, and I think that we're going to get more and we're going to get more and more out of these where what, what I'm doing and the reason that I shot this and, and I'm, I've been shooting tests with my, my ATEM extreme. And the reason this is, this is a good use case for this. What I'm doing is, um, I, I want to have a, uh, I need to build, I want to build things like, so for instance, Jeff Francis wanted to have a, uh, a little thing over his, he, he, he downloaded some, or he pointed me towards these little caps that you can put on, um, your, uh, fade to black button. <laughs> and I was not happy with them. <laughs> so, so I was going to, I printed them out or I, when I say I printed them out, my, I gave, I sent the link to my son and my son printed them out because he's become very good with the 3D printer and it's, I've, I've offset it to him. So the problem was, is that the little, there's little um, like hinges that they built here and they break all the time or the little, there's just, the, the stuff is breaking. And so I was like, I'm not going to send these to Jeff because I know they're not going to work. And so I, then, then it became like, well, I should, I, I should build one myself. And then the problem came is that I don't have the measurements. I could measure, I could try to measure it, but what I really want is just a 3D model of my ATEM switcher. Now I have a 3D model that I downloaded from somewhere, Thingiverse or something of the mini, but I don't have one of the extreme. And so the easiest way to, to start modeling, and I've been using 3D scans and we used to use a thing called cyberware for objects back in you know, the 90s. Um, I need to, I want a point cloud that just says this is the object and then I'm going to model it all to that point cloud as opposed to me trying to do a bunch of measurements, you know, and I just fit everything in. Um, and so you want as much accuracy as you can get from the measurement there. And so one of the ways to do that is to uh, just build a 3D model, like use photogrammetry to grab all that data. Um, I usually don't, I very rarely use photogrammetry data for final models. Like it's not really how I approach things, um, not all the time, but usually you're going to want to process them because it's a lot of raw data. Um, anyway, so what it did is, I'll, I'll show you what, what we did here. Let me find this real quick here. Um, but what I, what I do is I, is I work on that and I, and I upload it to Sketchfab. Um, um, it's just because Sketchfab in both poly, for both Polycam and, uh, and you can download these models, by the way, if you're, if you're watching this, um, you'll see a couple of different models. Um, one of the things you'll see is, uh, you know, I'll pull this over so you can see it. I don't think that there's nothing here that is a problem. So, 
Um, so this is a couple of test models that I've done um, and done it in a couple of different ways. Um, this is one that I this is one that I built um, in. This is with the earlier, a much earlier version of the same software that we're talking about today. Um, and I think I, I don't know when I published seven months ago is when I did this. And so you can see that if you take enough photos, you know, you can of something close up. This is a 3D model, you know, and it's a it's a, a textured 3D model. And if I um, I can go into a model inspector and show you what's called the matte cap, which is just the that's kind of the raw takes all the textures off so that you can see, but you can see all that. And that's not, these are, this is not a rata. Um, this is actually just, that's the roughness of the, of what I'm looking at there. Now you can see some soft areas here that are, that are created. Uh, if I grab onto the wireframe, you're going to see a very, um, it's a very dense wireframe. And a lot of that is probably more than we need, um, you know, for that. Now, one thing I noticed is that the new beta or the new version and the beta are different And the beta seemed to be able to do whatever resolution it needed. And the new version seems to be capped at a million polygons, which is a little bit of a bummer. I'm sure that they decided that was too heavy or something. So, so anyway, so, but you can see literally, if we go back to um, the final render, like this, this text that's on here, you know, when we go into, oops, if we go into that and then we go to the wireframe, you're going to see that it's there. Like that geometry is, let's go to the madcap. Um, now you can see where geometry is not quite perfect there, but um, that can be, you know, you can do a lot of work on that. And that's some something that oftentimes has to do with the vertexes here. The, here this is the normals. Normals are, so it looks like hair, but what it's really doing is the normals are telling you which direction each polygon is pointed. And you can see that some of them when they're, you know, they're all pointed in like, you know, lots of different directions. It's either a rough surface or it can be oftentimes a, um, you know, just that it didn't calculate the normals the way, it pro you know, you can work on realigning those a little bit. So, so anyway, so this is, but this is the output from, from it. Now we can, um, I can look at, uh, again, this was a, let's see this, this is what I did yesterday. This is the one that you just saw a picture of. So here is that that picture that you saw there that I was of all those images that I got. What I ended up with is this. Now this is something I probably wouldn't remodel, and that's why I use this as a test. This happens to just be sitting on <laughs> on the on the autumn in front of my my my. Uh, but but what you'll see is that you know it just happens to be sitting there. But it's a for those of us who do modeling. Wow, would this take a long time to model? So when you do mechanical stuff, you may want to remodel it. This is a case where we may actually use, we, we would probably photo model this. And unless we were getting super close, reproducing that in, uh, in you know, by, by hand would be super painful. Like the, this would be, you know, easy enough, the, the wooden piece, but all of this non-uniform, and this is where photogrammetry tends to really shine is in non-uniform complex data is where you might want to reduce the number of polygons, but you're not going to want to remodel it. Um, where you tend to want to remodel it is when it's a when it's a more mechanical object, um, because and I'll because I'll show you here where you have, um, so this was the ATEM that I was kind of playing with here, um, and you'll notice that there we go. So here is the the model, and you'll notice as I get close, you know the geometry is rough. You know, it's not, and I'll show you another example. I took, I took, used the same camera, my iPhone for uh, MetaShape, and you'll see that the, 
quality is a lot higher. So, but but as far as like I can take my phone out and take a picture, bunch of pictures, the measurements this is probably enough to model from right now, um, and it's up there. Um, of course, some pieces I couldn't see very well. I was just putting this on a little box and modeling it just as a test to see what I would get. Um, but I, if I, what I probably want to do is make it a little higher um, to make that work. But literally, I just took a bunch of photos. It guides you on what you want to do, and then you um, let it upload, and then it ends up on Sketchfab. And it's, uh, I don't know if I have measurements in Sketchfab, but it, it is, uh, let's see if it does. Uh, no, I don't think so. But you'll notice that the, um, if we go to MatCap, you know, everything's pretty rough, but it is probably all pretty accurately in the, in the right place. So if you're going to, but this is where, this kind of thing is where you want to remodel it. Um, but you're going to use this as a template for you to, to put that together as opposed to figuring those things out. Um, you can see that you know, here's the geometry and the geometry isn't super dense and that's the problem. And the geometry is fairly, it doesn't smartly, at least this, this app doesn't smartly find the edges and uh, make them work. Now, to put this in perspective, I, this is 200 photos and I got this geometry. I also, just as a test last night for this, for this show, I, I went ahead and took it just while it was sitting on my desk. I took a couple photos of... Um, of the of the switcher and then i threw these this is just me throwing them in i took about 38 photos and i threw them into metashape and so metashape is a um is a desktop based version and something i've used for a long time and what you're going to notice here as i look at this is just the dense cloud this isn't actually geometry but as i get closer like all of those are points right so the geometry that's being generated from the same camera with you know is um, was considerably higher, and and one of the reasons for that is that I was able to just use the phone, the phone's ability to um, shoot, and it focused better. the The problem with Meta, the problem with the the reality scan was that it will only focus at a certain distance, and so I couldn't get closer. And because I couldn't get closer, I couldn't get as much data, and I was able to get a lot more data. And what I didn't do on this, which I have to experiment with next, is shoot forty eight megapixel, which I'd be really interested in. So I will say. I've not used MetaShape on my studio before. I've used it on my iMac, my older iMac. Wow, was it fast? <laughs> this took this took nothing to get done. I mean, it was just incredibly fast. So if you know, I I don't know if I if I was serious, I think I'd probably still come back. But you can see that that's a that's a lot of geometry there that's being aggregated. Now, where it has trouble are these. Um, uh, you'll notice that. Um, it doesn't know where the white is. There's no data. Like if I really wanted to model this, I would spray it with something or something else that gave it some texture. But, you know, plain white, it doesn't really know what to do with. It did know what to do with where the text was because it, it had some stuff, but here it didn't. So if I if I if we look at the, the actual geometry, you'll see it gets rough where it doesn't really understand, you know, what it's looking at um, here. Now I could probably, re again, if I'm remodeling it and using this as a template, I'm probably okay. Um, but, uh, but that's the, and now the other thing is, is that you'll notice how much more data is here compared to, so if we go close up here, woo, so you'll see, these are just kind of lumps, you know, these are, and that's what I'm getting out of there. And what I'm getting out of MetaShape is, oops, considerably, let's see if I can, yeah, I don't know what I did with it, hold on. You can see what was lumps, it really has lots of, so this would be easier for me to place everything precisely 
you know, underneath it. So if I was going to get serious about it, I, I really thought I would do it with the phone. Um, I think that for my little project, you guys will probably see me continue to work through this project over the next couple of weeks um, as I try to build a relatively good model of this. I mean, I don't really care about the textures. I might still put them in just for fun, but but I think it's going to be a... Um, anyway, so I'm, I'm kind of working through uh, building this this model out and, and I'll, um, I'm going to use the... You probably end up using Metashape for the template um, to make that make that actually work. So um, anyway, so that's... But basically, that's all you do. What's cool about it is, again, it's not probably as good as something like Metashape, and which is kind of surprising since they're putting it up in the cloud. I'm not really sure. I'm using the same camera. So anyway, um, uh, the basic process, though, is very easy and it's free. You can download it and just take pictures and you'll end up with a 3D model. <laughs> so so I would highly recommend, and, and I, I'm hoping that more of us kind of get into photogrammetry. Photogrammetry, even if you're not a, um, uh, if you're not a 3D artist, it, it's it's still great um, to uh, it's really really great thing to know how to do. So if you're building models, like for instance, I could if I had someone to work with on this, I would just take that 3D model, send it to someone, and say, hey, can you build a model for me from that? And and we do that with lidar a lot as well. And I, by the way, in just case you're wondering, we will be talking about lidar in the near future. I scan part of Freeport, Pennsylvania, my my hometown. Um, I scanned some corners. On, on it and uh, we're gonna put that up so people can play around with aligning it and it's got tons of detail. So so we'll see and we'll, we'll play with that a little bit. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I noticed on the website that it does work on the iPad and the iPod touch. So oh. if, as long as you have uh, iOS 16 or later on there, it uh, it should work even on those lower priced units. Doesn't require LiDAR obviously to do the job with photogrammetry. Yeah, it's not using, it's just using the, it, I don't know if it does it, like Polycam lets you switch back and forth. Do you want to use LiDAR? Do you want to use, and what what I find interesting is how long it's taking for us to merge the two technologies together, which is that we're going to take measurements with the LiDAR and take pictures with the with the camera. And I don't feel like that's what's happening right now. And, and it seems like an obvious thing to do, um, but uh, but it hasn't happened. But the the AR tools for most of these cameras is so good that they only need a little bit of parallax and they immediately can lock the camera in and figure out where it's at. So yeah, they don't need to have the LiDAR there to, to make it work. Um, so um, anyway, yeah, I, I think it's gonna be, I'll try it on an iPad too. One frustration I had as well is that it won't export the images because the reality is, is that reality, the reality scan is a great guide for taking the photos. What I would love to do is take the 200 photos that I generated with reality scan and bring them into, into um, Metashape Meta and see what Metashape created. I'm, I bet you it would be an incredible model, you know, but it's, so it's a great capture system that unfortunately doesn't give me, won't export the raw images. It'll show them to me. It just won't send them out, which is a little bit of a, a little bit of a bummer. Um, uh, next question. Uh, next question from Jonas Dattel in Stuttgart, Germany. What impact do you expect Epic's new reality scan technology to have on the film and media industries, and how will it change the way content is created and consumed? It's a great question. Um, I, I don't think it's going to affect it very much, only because the tools that we use, as I showed you there with Metascan, are much more robust than what, what it this does. Um, I think what this does is really provide game developers, people who are thinking about AR, people who are trying to, you know, who want something that's relatively easy and fast to grab onto. I think it gives them a new tool that they can use that's that's good prosumer, consumer um, solution. So I think that that's really where it, it's going to make a difference. Um, I don't think that 
for most of us that are doing like fo real photogrammetry for production, you know, we're using higher resolution cameras. Uh, we're using more robust. Now, Reality Scan has another application called Reality Capture. I mean, Ep Epic bought Reality Capture and made Reality Scan. So this is a quick little iPhone thing that's really cool. Um, they have a bigger version of it that is a very professional version. I don't, I'm not as familiar with it. I'm, I've been using Metascan for a decade or over over a decade. So I, it's just what I know. Um, but, but, but Reality Capture is something I'd like to jump into and play with because it's free. You only pay for the models you export. Um, so, and now the other thing about Meta, Metashape, if you look at it, it's free too, if you don't want to export anything. <laughs> so if you, you can download it and just use it in demo mode, you just can't save anything. And so, um, but you can, uh, play with it and learn it without having to, uh, invest any, any money into it. Um, and the pro version is nice because you can script it. So you can say, I want you to do all these things. So I can just hand it a bunch of photos, come back and have a 3d model with textures on it, you know, without any, any other bits and pieces. But a lot of us are using, you know, the, um, Again, it's like in the film world, there's a there there was a company um, called Pixel Gun that now is owned by 2K that um, basically have 150 150 cameras, and they uh, take 150 photos of a person at one time. Like you, it's all evenly lit, and they do this for like games, like uh, 2K games, and and you basically take a whole bunch of you. Uh, have the person stand out there and and take pictures, and there's a, they have more focused on the face than others. And they're able to capture like almost the skin texture on the person because they're just a bunch of high resolution, you know, these are all SLRs and they feed all those those images back to a server which processes them. Then that gets usually sent to ZBrush which they clean up any of the errata that you saw in that thing, you paint it out. And that usually then goes to Maya to be rigged, um, you know, from there. So, um, and, and oftentimes, you know, the in ZBrush, oftentimes they retopolitize it, they change, they, they kind of rebuild the, that surface, and so those are the those are kind of the step by steps that you um, that you see oftentimes with these uh, these processes. So anyway, it's it's a it's a um, I don't think it's going to affect filmmaking that much, but it's a really cool solution to be able to go grab something and even just if you want to send it to somebody, like here's something for you to look at, um, and they can. The other thing you can do that I I can't show you now because I can't get my phone to talk to my switcher, but the other thing that they can do is. Um, uh, they can um, uh, when you send it to somebody, you can send a USDZ file to a uh, just via text over you know from an iPhone, and someone can literally open it and pop it up right in front of them, and it'll be to scale, <laughs> like it'll be it'll be at scale. So you can say, I have this object. You can take in does this is this going to fit into something? I've also taken this kind of stuff. Um, I didn't use this. I used a, another piece of software. I used Polycam. I had a pipe fitting that I couldn't quite figure out, and um, I, I, need, I couldn't figure out what to get. To, so I literally created a 3D model um, just by moving it around the pipe. It was like still installed in the garden. I just moved it around, and then I took it to the hardware store, and I popped it up on the desk, you know, like so the person could see, like we could rotate around and talk about what it was. Now, the only problem with that was that the hardware store person literally stopped the entire store, had every person come over and look at my phone. And they all had to see this crazy thing that I had done with a pipe. And they were like, this is the future. This is amazing. And so it, there was like 15 minutes of like chaos that was created by doing it. 
but they're immediately able to see like, oh, this is this pipe fitting and this is what you got to do. And here's the tools you need. And here's the, like, they immediately knew what to do because I wasn't trying to describe it. Like I got a pipe and I measured it and I don't know whether it's the inner or the outer. They just immediately knew what it was, you know? And so that's the kind of stuff that you're going to be able to do, you know, as you, you know, as you go forward. Um, next question. From Chad Lafarge in Columbia, Missouri. Uh, in addition to reflective surfaces, seems it's harder to scan the black textured surface of a Stream Deck Plus. Do you have tricks to improve my results? Go ahead, Courtney. Can't hear you, Courtney. Sorry. Yeah. Keep a click on it. It just don't work. Um, I saw a recent uh, video on the Corridor Cruise on a Nerf AI to generate uh, using photogrammetry to create realistic uh Images and it uh, it seems to handle reflective surfaces and a lot of other stuff. It's from Nvidia, I think, in capital N, little E R F. Uh, have you seen this? And does it uh, solve a lot of these problems for capturing stuff in Unreal Engine that uh, previously was uh, not doable with uh, photogrammetry? Yeah, and, and Nerf is not necessarily from Nvidia. It is a it is a you know it's. Um, this is a uh, neural radiance fields are the are what it's doing there, and and this is um, and it processes the images and builds the three D uh, fields um, that are there. The there is an option to play with Nerf inside of Polycam, which is the other app that I use, and I've just started to play with it, and I haven't gotten far enough down the path, but it should solve a lot of these problems um, as we move forward. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I, I'm sorry to ask a newbie question here because I'm not a modeler by trade, but when you have this photogrammetry going on and this kind of detail and all these polygons versus creating the same um, uh, element in a uh, modeling program where you can set the model as a primitive and distort it and do all the stuff and then add a texture to it where it's a lot simpler model, where do the two kind of join together in terms of the best tools to use to get there? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so basically, where photogrammetry, in my opinion, works really well are non-uniform surfaces that are complex and detailed and up until now, not super reflective. I mean, that's just harder to work with. Um, for things that are really reflective, like just shiny objects, a lot of times what we've done is we spray them with something that is a, um, that we can take off or put a bunch of dust on it. So we've, we've sprayed, you know, we've taken like, for instance, Shona artwork from Zimbabwe and it's very shiny when it's done. And so what we do is uh, we, you know, spray it with a dust that just gives us a surface all over it that we can easily wipe off. So talc, you know, talcum powder, <laughs> that that kind of thing can, you can just put it all over it. It'll give you a surface that you can work with. But even then there's a lot of smooth surfaces and wherever those smooth surfaces are, there's probably a lot more geometry than what you need. So to your point, Mitchell, what you do is a lot of times we use, if it's got a fair number of, uniform surfaces and everything else, we'll try to go back and remodel those so that we get just the, the surfaces where we need them. Another way to do that is to reduce the geometry. Um, so a lot of times you'll take that geometry and you'll reduce it down to a, um, it, you'll convert some of that geometry to, to neural, I mean, to not neural, but to, to normal maps. So normal maps will, you know, reproduce, and that's a whole other second hour, so I'm not gonna get into texture mapping uh, on, this, on this one, but basically they are, um, reproducing the complexity of that surface without the geometry. And they're like a more advanced, it's a very simplified way to say it, but they're a more advanced version of bump maps. <laughs> so, they, so they'll create a lot, the appearance of a lot of geometry and it's used heavily in games. Um, but it's basically perturbing where the normals are. Um, uh, they, have a, they have a lot more control over where those go. But, but basically a normal, by the way, as I talk about this, 
is a, um, by the way, I asked, I asked a chat GPT what a normal was because I, I knew it would come up and it actually is a pretty good description of it. I, I don't have it in front of me right now, but it was a really good description of a normal. Anyway, um, chat GPT is an AI chat tool that you can just ask it open-end questions and it'll just give you answers. And what I find is that even though I know something, if I want it to be succinct, I, I've been in the last five or six days, I've been throwing it in there and it gives me a more succinct ver, um, answer <laughs> than, than what I would give. So um, anyway, the a normal is a vector that is perpendicular to the surface of a polygon. You know, every all the geometry that we see today, I mean, there's we can talk about voxels and everything else, but everything we see today is an is a uh, got a polygon in there, and so it, that normal tells it where to how to shade it. So if the if the if the light is up here, and its you know vector is very different than the normal, it says, oh, don't give it too much light. If it's point if it's perfectly aligned with the normal, it says give it a lot of light. And so that's how we light our our objects. And so what we can do is is lower the the geometry and then perturb the normals. And so we have a, a map that basically points the normals and you know, even though the polygon is pointed up, we can perturb those normals um, at the pixel by pixel level to, re to recreate the appearance of geometry that isn't there. I mean, the only time you see that is when you go right edge on, you'll see, well, it's still flat. <laughs> so, so you have to be kind of careful of, you know, you still have to have some geometry in there to catch that. So anyway, um, there are, there's definitely, you know, I'll show you um, some, uh, let me see if I can find it really quickly here. Um, there is, uh, you know, there are, there are other things that, that I've done with photogrammetry. This is not with the app that we're, um, talking about right now, but if you cut to my, my other screen, um, you know, what you'll see is, uh, and this is for the folks that are, I think I'm screen sharing. So, um, for the program, um, but if you cut to the other screen here, what you're going to see is, uh, I'm just waiting to someone to cut to the, to the screen, to screen share. <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, what you'll see eventually, hopefully, if, unless there's some problem, let me know in comms if there's a problem with getting to my screen. There we go. Um, anyway, the, uh, uh, this is, this is all, so all the, this is not normal. This would be a great, great example of something that would, would be good with normal maps, but everything you see there, all the, the geometry, that's real geometry. Um, this is, uh, this is from Anchor Watt. And that's the, these are all the photos I took. Now I used an old Canon, Mark II to do this, but all those, those images there are all, um, those are all stills. That's where I took pictures to, to build, to build the map. You can see the stills kind of all there. And, but you start, you know, ge generating those stills generated that geometry, you know? And so modeling that geometry from scratch, like modeling all of that from scratch. Wow. That would take a long time. <laughs> like it would take, it would take longer to model that than it took me to fly to Cambodia take the photos and process them and and come back and probably less expensive to, to just fly there and take the photos. Now, you may want to eventually, if you look at this geometry, and again, this was just a test that I did, but you can see even the ropes are, are calculated there. You can see the ropes down here that are being calculated in, in 3D, you know, from that, from those photos. But this is just photos, no model, you know, this, and, uh, and so, and, and this is what photogrammetry does exceptionally well. Um, you know, now, what photogrammetry does not do well, to go back to what we were just talking about, is, uh, wait for it, uh, this, <laughs> mechanical objects. <laughs> mechanical objects, you know, because it's, it, it doesn't, you know, they're, they have lots of, they need a lot of geometry at, on edges and not much geometry on the surfaces. And so they become, and, and also the other thing I, I knew about AnchorWatt when I did it, uh, if I can find it again, is that there was tons of diffuse, complex surfaces. So all the kind of, um, you know, all this water damage and everything else on all these surfaces, 
is really good for photogrammetry because it, it, it has lots of points of interest that it can grab onto and and um, and and make work. So um, that was part of the part of the thing. Yeah. So so that's to, to kind of answer your question. And then what you can do is you can do what we call decimation, which means I'm going to reduce the amount of geometry. And different tools are, have different abilities of doing decimation. Metashape has its own decimation. ZBrush has it. When I was working on Star Wars, we used one called Rainbow Geomagic that had really good decimation. And so we would build a very complex model and then have it just get rid of, and basically what it does is it looks at the geometry and sees how bent is that geometry? Like, is you know, what's the difference literally of, of how these things are facing? And if that break angle that goes between those surfaces is low enough, if it's if it's if it's close enough, it just merges them together. So that and, and if it's far enough, it keeps that keeps that data. So if you, on that means that on edges that are changing a lot per the surface, it keeps all the geometry on a big flat surfaces. It just gets rid of most of it. it just keeps merging it all together. And that's a that's what we call decimation. And so we decimate the uh, um, the geometry to 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 reduce the. You can oftentimes reduce the complex. You know. It's like a JPEG for 3D, right? So it it is um, it can get rid of you know ninety percent of the geometry, and oftentimes you can't necessarily see it. Um, next question. And the next question is from Richard Bowman in Defiance, Ohio. Can Reality Scan do turntable scans, or do you have to move around the object with your device? Um, I think that it's generally designed to not move around. I mean, it's generally designed to move around the way it's kind of set up. I don't know if you, uh, you might be able to do turntable. I haven't tried that. Um, the one that I would probably use if I was doing turntable is QClone, and which I haven't done a ton of because it's got some patterns and I don't have a printer. <laughs> like it's, it's got patterns of print underneath it and I don't have the printer. And so I haven't um, uh, to orient the camera, but QClone is, a, is another app that you can get for your phone. Um, to make that work, you can definitely do that kind of thing with, uh, again, with something like Metashape. And the the key is there are, in the pro versions of a lot of these, you can put on little, basically shapes that are kind of like QR codes that orient the camera. So it keeps on maintaining its orientation, knowing where those shapes are. It goes, oh, oh, oh I know what that means. And so it can keep on reorienting its, its assumptions based on that, as opposed to using the geometry around it. Uh, next question. From Douglas Carmichael, does Reality Scan require an iPhone 14, or does it work on older models? I don't know how far back it goes, but I think it will go back to a probably at least a 10. You know, like it's probably not. I, I don't think you go with something earlier than a 10, but um, you probably do a 10. Would probably would probably go back to that. Um, uh, yeah, because it's not. Again, it's not using the lidar. You know, to make that to make that work. But it may need a, a, something that supports a more modern operating system. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, the requirements are it has to be able to run iOS 16.0 or later. So it can be an iPad, it can be an iPod, it can be an iPhone earlier, as long as they, it can, that device can load 16 or later. IOS yeah, and, and, and again, I, what I highly recommend is downloading and playing with it because I think it's a really important skill for everybody to have is to be able to start generating geometry. And we're going to talk more about LiDAR. I did finally get some a good place to do some tests. And so I've, I've scanned some stuff we're going to make available to everybody. And um, and we're going to do more in photogrammetry. And I would just, the I've been doing photogrammetry. When I started doing photogrammetry, we literally were hand matching the photos. <laughs> like We were like building the primitives as Mitchell was talking about. And what we would do is we'd look at something that looked like a rec, like a square, like a building. And we put up a primitive of a of a uh, of a box, and we'd fit that box in so that we we'd figure out the parallax and everything else by hand, and 
we painstakingly would rebuild entire city blocks and everything else by building reference points from from cubes that were known to us and then and then building it all out. So the early days of photogrammetry were really very, very basic. And then Paul DeBevick really broke, the, broke through on that in probably the late 90s. He, he, I think, I don't know where he works right now. I think he works for Google. But um, he worked for University of Berkeley for a long time. And Paul really got into a, hey, if I can identify, if I can identify key features between different images, I can process those and turn it into 3D models. And so, so his was the, the first step down that path of doing it with a computer. And we started using things like, um, a RealViz had, you know, some photogrammetry tools um, that, that were then bought by Autodesk, you know, and, and brought it, you know, their technology was brought in. But, um, you know, Image Modeler was like early, like 2000, 2002, that kind of thing was where we, what we started using. So it's gotten... And we all knew that it was going to take over, but we just didn't know how long it would take. And it, it's taken a while, but it's pretty amazing. Go ahead, Courtney. Does it make a difference in the type of camera and whether you're not whether or not you have things like autofocus turned on yeah. or not? And do you have to turn off autofocus to make sure that it's not hunting or lens gathering pictures, things like that? Yeah. So in general, you don't want to change your in general, you don't want to change your focal length, absolutely. Um, and in general, you also don't want to change focus. Now, I find that focus is not as important as, um, as your, now you oftentimes, what's interesting about it is, is that an iPhone actually in some ways is better than a big DSLR specifically because the, the, um, the image size is so much smaller. That's why I I haven't had time to do it, but I think on a well-lit environment, a 48 megapixel iPhone image might be better than a 48 megapixel from a DSLR because the depth of field is way deeper because it's such a much smaller sensor. And so um, a lot of times what we try to do is you don't want depth of field. So you want to be shooting, if you're shooting with an SLR, not on this app, but if you're shooting with a DSLR, you oftentimes want to be at like F11 to F16, you know, or even F22 if it's bright enough (laughs) to make sure that everything is in focus. Then a lot of times we will, the 24 to 70, this Canon 24 to 70 actually will lock. You can actually lock it at 24. And so you can turn it to 24 and hit this little, pull this little lever and it'll just lock it in there that so it doesn't change by accident. Otherwise, if we're using a variable lens, which a lot of times you want to try to avoid, now if you're using a zoom lens, we tape them. You know, we actually tape them so that we can't change it. We find what we want to use and it's oftentimes a little bit wider, longer is harder to figure out. It's harder to triangulate a longer lens than it than a, than a wider lens. And so a lot of times 35 is a really good number, 35 24 even, you know, wider um, can be. You don't want to distort but you also want it to be a hot, and, and the lens becomes really important, a high quality lens, because every little pixel matters. Um, the uh, So the, the camera, you don't want to change focal length. You don't want to, you want to move around a lot. You want a wider angle lens. Um, you want to, you know, get closer and wider. A lot of times though, you also don't want to go be random. They do pay attention to how the images are named, you know, numbered. And so you want to kind of work from one side to the other. Um, a lot of times the, the apps do better when they're when they're not, you're kind of randomly going everywhere. Uh, at least Metashape does. Now with Reality Scan, I think that it may be a little bit more. The, the big advantage of capturing with, a, with an iPhone is that it captures so much metadata. <laughs> so there's tons of metadata about what it's doing. It's a very known lens. You can't have, you can't put another lens on. You can't have back focus issues. You can't have all kinds of things that you would have with a regular camera. And so um, I actually think that, again, I, I'm gonna test it in the next week over um, with, uh, I'm gonna be testing over the next week with um, um, 
you know, playing around with 48 megapixel to see if it makes any difference. Because, but the problem right now is I, what I have to figure out with reality scan is whether I'm going to get geometry of more than a million polygons, you know, for anything. And that's, you know, that might, the 48 megapixels may be less important uh, in that environment. Uh, next question. Rob Collins in Kansas City, Missouri asked, do you know if reality scan works on the iPad as well as it does on the iPhone? And we answered that a little earlier. And the answer is yes. And by the way, we're cutting through these questions pretty quick. If you, uh, if you have uh, questions about this, we'll, we'll run to the, it'll be a short hour right now. So there's plenty of room for you. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, can the reality scan models be imported into Blender? Go ahead, Mitchell. I'm going to guess and say that that many polygons may crush your uh, computer. Eh, not anymore. I mean, I think you're right in the old days, but but I think that um, a million polygons isn't that many anymore. So if you have a reasonably new computer, now if you have a t 2012 or 2014 computer, Mitchell's completely right. A million polygons will be very heavy. Um, but nowadays an iPhone will move around a two, two million polygon object relatively smoothly. So um, you should be able to bring that in, a uh, million polygons, you should be able to bring into Blender. Um, the question, if you start bringing multiple ob million polygon objects in, you may have trouble. So a lot of times what you want to do is, again, I'm going to be modeling uh, this extreme in, in uh, Cinema 4D. Uh, so for me, I'll bring that in and then I'll put it as an underlay and then I'll you just lock it and then I'll start building things around it and trying to match each piece and, and making it, you know, putting that together. So, um, but you could, I think you could probably do exactly the same thing with Blender. Seems like once you've got one of your buttons on your extreme modeled, you could just start dropping yeah. them in. Yeah, it's not hard. The a lot of the stuff is not. Um, I, I one of the reasons I thought this would be a fun little project is that the buttons are all there's two styles of buttons. There's a handful of interfaces on the back. You know, there's things are not as complicated on this device. It looks really complicated, but and there's just um, the texture maps. Um, copy pretty often. So it'd be figuring out those texture mapping uh, issues. I probably basically, yeah, anyway, so I, I'm, I'm probably going to, and I'm trying to, I'm going to try to build as much of it into the geometry as possible. So I'll separate the top of the buttons as their own geometry so that they're all kind of, I can just set them to black and then put a texture on top of that. And so um, a bunch of little things that I'll probably do, and I'll, we'll talk more about it as I get a little further on. Um, next question. Richard Bowman from Defiance, Ohio, wants to know, what are your opinions on Sketchfab going adult only? I have no idea. I didn't know that Sketchfab went adult only. Um, I think that, uh, I, don't, I don't know what that even means. I, I don't, I've never seen anything that was adult-like, like adult images or whatever on Sketchfab. Um, my guess is they, it probably has to do with um, just, what people say, it, the easiest thing to do right now on the internet is to say everything's 14 and older. <laughs> Just it's 14 or older or 15 or older or 18 year older. It has more to do with not having users interacting with each other that are adults and kids. And and that's just a, from a pure, um, you know, pr protection of your property thing. A lot of people have just found that it'd be easier that way. So they say you should be an adult. And if a, if someone underage uses it, they say, well, you broke the TOS. <laughs> you know, like if they use it and something goes wrong, they're like, you broke the TOS because you weren't, you were, you know, we didn't allow that. I don't know how they'd enforce it. So I don't, I don't know what that means. But I th my guess is it's just from a legal liability perspective, it's easier for them to just say no, no kids. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael again. Is there any way to reduce the density of the geometry when it is output? I've done a bit of vertex editing as I learned Blender, and I can't imagine having that many vertices to edit. 
Yeah, I don't know what Blender does as far what Blender what its decimation tools look like. It may have a bunch of decimation tools, so I I don't know for sure. Um, but I think that um, it is. Uh, it would be interesting. Um, uh, there's lots of decimation. What you're looking for are decimation tools, tools that will reduce the geometry but maintain the edges. Um, and so that's the that's that's what you're, 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 you you want to kind of keep looking for there. And again, I'll be I'm going to make this a little bit of a project, and I'll give you guys updates as we as we go forward um, on on these on this process. But but I think that that's you're looking for a good decimation tool. Uh, next question. From Eduardo Augustine in Panama, would you use Reality Scan to scan entire rooms to create models for houses? You know, the inside-out nature of photogrammetry is the harder thing to do. It's not impossible. Um, I don't think I'd really use Reality Scan for that. I, I find that Poly, Polycam does that fairly well. And so I, I've done a fair bit of geometry with Polycam where I just kind of wave my phone around and I get a bunch of geometry that I can use and it just builds up that geometry really, really nicely. And it gives me a real, I think, I think that for the most part, reality scan is really designed for objects and not for environments. Polycam, I think will do a better job with environments and with all of them pointed outward is more difficult to do well. Matterport, which I still have in a box that I'll eventually open, um, has, uh, is, is a way to, you know, systematize that with, um, and, and grab it. So the Matterport and Polycam, and then I have, um, I happen to, I think it's behind me somewhere over there, I have a, a, a BLK360, which is a, a, in the LiDAR world, a, a relatively inexpensive <laughs> um, uh, scanner. And uh, it is, and I just set that in the middle of a room and it's just going to grab everything all in about five minutes. And, and then that's the easiest way to do it. So if, if you're going to do it as a I'm, I don't do this very often. I would probably use Polycam. If, I, if you're going to do it relatively often, I'd probably use the Matterport. And if it's something that you're really doing for business and you really want to grab onto it, I'd probably look at either renting, you know, uh, a BLK360 um, or or owning one if you can buy one. I bought mine used. I had a friend who owned one that wasn't using it as much as he could have. So he sold it to me to buy something else. And um, uh and then, of course, you can get a service. Like I have, I had a theater scanned and I just, instead, it would have cost me a lot to fly out to New York and go to the theater and scan it. And I just hired someone to take a, um, to take a scan out. And, and just, so, just so we're clear, what Alex is talking about is about $22,000. So it is inexpensive by, you know, by those standards. There's a, there's a less expensive Leica that just came out and I haven't been able to test it against the one that I have. Um, so there's a less, there's like a five or $6,000 one. So the, yeah, the the Polycam is you know seven dollars a month. Reality Scan is you know the Matterport I think is there's a subscription and it's like hundred fifty dollars, and then the um and then as you go up the the again the you can rent them for about you can rent a um like a you know the the, the BLK three sixty for about two hundred fifty dollars a day, you know two you know two to two to three hundred dollars a day. Uh, and then you can the much more capable Faro three Faro three fifty is probably like four fifty five hundred dollars a day, but it's like a sixty thousand dollar or thirty five thousand dollars scanner. And then there's then you go up from there to like a ZNF, which is an eighty thousand dollars scanner, and that costs more. Um, next question. Eric Billings from Washington D.C. has a question. Have you noticed any increased photogrammetry accuracy with iPhone fourteen versus thirteen? Zero. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't seem to make any difference on that front-facing camera. Now, again, what I have, what I haven't done that I ha that I have to do. Well, it doesn't. I think it's grabbing the twelve megapixel all the time. So I don't think that it is. 
Um, I don't think that at least reality scan is grabbing 48 megapixels. So that's my next test is to do a 48 megapixel capture and see what kind of geometry I get from that. Next question. Javier Alfaro from Mexico City, Mexico, right here on our panel. How can I get a USDZ file from RealityScan? Can I export USDZ directly, or what would be the recommended workflow? RealityScan tends to send everything to um, uh, to Sketchfab, and I believe from Sketchfab you can export into USDZ is one of the file formats that it supports. So Sketchfab, you can just you can send it out. So um, so that that's where I would probably grab onto the USDZ. Polycam will do all those geometry directly. So you can up, upload to, spe, um, to Sketchfab, but you can also just export directly as USDZ out from Polycam. So it, it will do it on its own. And I've sent many things that way. Like what's cool about Polycam is that, it, again, when someone gets it on the other side and they open it up, it will be to scale. So if, they, if they're in a big enough room and you sent them a picture of a room, it'll just sit inside thing and walk around and look at it. And it's kind of a cool, cool experience. You know, it's, it's, again, the reason that I'm, I want to bring this up is because this is about to be a huge market. Like if you're thinking about like this, the market that's coming for AR, VR, XR, all these things, you know, when Apple eventually turns the gas on, the market will explode. Like it, it's going to be, you know, this is, and so there's not many times when something is moving so slow into the future that you can just see there's this huge barge and it had, it's just packed with bullion. You know, like just it's just like tons of gold, you know, is just sitting there in that in that barge and it's just going slowly down the thing and you go, Hey, I can I can run as fast as that barge and, and I can get in there and I can I can be ready to to grab onto some of those gold plates. And um this is one of those few moments where we've heard about it for long enough and Apple is big enough to to make it work. Um and I I still believe that that there's going to be a market where one of the big markets I think is gonna that's gonna happen is clip art. And I know this will sound crazy, but I just think that 3D clip art is about to become a really big deal. So think about all the clip art that you use and all the little shapes that you you might buy or, you know, buy, you might buy a hundred of them for 50 bucks or 20 bucks. Most of us that did graphic design, we, we bought these in the past. Imagine that all being 3D. All of it has to re- be, be rebuilt from scratch, you know, and people aren't going to want to pay $150 a, a model. They're going to want to pay $25 for 10 models. You know, I got you know, the, the office stuff, there's phones and some other things. And, and so the turbo squid model won't really work because, but there'll be, the market will be a hundred times bigger than it is now. Right now you're talking to 3d artists. The big thing is, is when Apple, you know, this is my big prediction for you and why we're talking about these things is that when Apple eventually releases USDZ support in pages, numbers and keynote, which will all happen at the same time, it will, it will create a arms race because PowerPoint will have to do it and Google will have to do it or they'll just be totally left behind. Because one of the big problems we have is we wanna put objects into our presentations and we can't get, you know, this object is oriented this way and this is oriented that way. Uh, Right now what I do is I take USDZ models that we've built and I throw them into motion and I rotate them to the angle that I want them in for my keynote presentation and then I just, or or I do it even in, in preview, preview supports USDZ. And so I can open up a USDZ file, rotate it to where I want it. Then I take a screen capture and I put it into, into a keynote. And now I have, and, and the, just that really weird way of doing it has transformed how I put 3D objects into my presentations because they all now have the same field of view. They all have the same uh, vanishing points. They all have the same, you know, everything kind of 
fits together. And this is going to get a lot more intense when this happens. And it's just going to be, a, a, I, I, I really believe it's going to be a, an astronomical gold rush. Uh, go ahead, uh, Courtney. Don't you think that AI text to art generators are going to have more impact on, you know, elimination of the clip art world than anything else? Don't you think that those well, can mean, generate much more creative and much more textured and much more beautiful looking images to put in your presentations than finding, you know, clip art and um, twirling it around to the right angle, you know? Maybe. And maybe you, you put a bunch of geometry and they'll figure out how to make it for you. But, but I think that right now... It's still a little bit of a, I throw something in and hope something comes out the other end, you know, with, with, um, clip with, uh, AI. I mean, I, I, I have a full subscription to mid journey. I use it all day. <laughs> like, like I come, I, I just put things, it's like my entertainment. Oh, I need a coffee break is usually means that I'm going, I don't use it all day, but I use it every day on mid journey. And I, and I'm constantly building goof, you know, incredibly interesting images. And I'm mostly I'm figuring out how it works. And I'm starting to do that now in the last week with, uh, chat GP, uh, GP, uh, T because I'm just curious what it can do. You know, I'm just kind of testing the waters there, but I will say it's going to be some time before that happens. And again, uh, it, it's fine when we're doing generalized ideas for presentations, but what is, you know, what's going to happen pretty soon is that every object, um, if right now, for instance, uh, I can, you know, it shows up occasionally on Amazon. You'll be looking at something that's a household good and I'll go, would you like to see that in your house? And you click on the button on the bottom of the Amazon and it just uses AR and you can literally just, it'll pop out at scale and you can move it around and put it, like I was looking for a little TV thing for under my TV and it's there, lit. <laughs> like like it, it looks just like it belongs there. Am I more likely to buy that product? Absolutely. Absolutely, because I now know that it works. And there's so many times when something comes in and it's bigger or smaller or something you didn't expect. And um, like I bought, I bought some, I bought a gift for my daughter, and I thought it was a little Embira, and I thought it was going to be about this big, and it was really half that size, <laughs> like this tiny thing. I was like, I don't even know how you use that. But it, you know, and, and those are the things that that will go away when you have those objects. But again, um, I know that uh, one of our members, I won't call him out. He's probably listening, but he can talk about it in the text if he wants you know, started building some of the objects that his company makes, right? The, the mechanical objects that his company makes. And the salespeople all want them. Like they, because now they can open up an iPad and show them, this is my product. And this is, this is what it looks like. And it sits on a desk. And, uh, um, and, and that's going to be, you know, so for, you know, but, but I think a lot of people are going to want examples of things that they can, you know, that they can have there. So, yeah. So anyway, it's, um, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. Um, next question. Tommy Shantz in St. Paul, Minnesota. What programs could you use images from regularly with digital cameras? For example, a Canon NK3 to create models. Uh, the, the, yeah, if you're using something other than the phone, um, you know, the the two big ones are Reality Capture and Meta MetaShape. Reality Capture is free. MetaShape costs, there's a monthly, you can get it as a subscription. I think it's 50 bucks a month or something like that. So it's not inexpensive. You can use MetaShape in demo mode. So if you want to learn it and find out if you like it better or worse than reality um, scan or reality capture, you can use it. I, I need to get reality capture into my thing just so I know how it works. I just haven't had time to learn it. Reality MetaShape is so easy because you drag the images in and say, try, you know, align the photos, create a dense mesh, create a mesh, texture it. And it's just like, it's like boom, 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 boom. And you can, and in the pro version, you can just hit 
you can put those all into a script and hit go and walk away and you end up with geometry. So because of that, I tend to use Metashape, you know, for those things. Um, but I think reality uh, capture is, is a lot of people I know love it. So it's, it's, those are the two big ones though. And they run on Linux, Windows, Mac, you know, they're, and they will use all of your processing. Like they're very aggressive about using, if you put, I think like a Metashape, if you put four GPUs into a PC, Metashape will use all of them <laughs> to do the processing. So it's, you know, it, it, they, they, because that's their, their bread and butter. And if you ever saw um, the Mac Pro, um, there was a Mac Pro demo that Justine Ezerick um, showed with all of her CPUs at, at 100%. Like all, on, a, on a new Mac Pro, the big cheese grater, grater that came out, she got, she had one that was loaded and she usually all the things up. That's because I sent her some some, some images uh, from India and she just, you just throw them in, turn it on and it just lights up the entire um, the entire uh, Mac Pro because it, it knows how to use all of the processing. Uh, next question. Next question, James Fosley from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Could you add a known object, quarter one by three by four machinist block to then help with scale? You can. You're going to find that uh, with the phone, it's, scale is going to be pretty accurate. <laughs> like, like it was funny. I, I don't know why, but I imagine my, uh, my, I imagine this switcher to be bigger than it actually is. I was thinking it was like, oh, it's like 18 inches long. It's not, it's one point, you know, it's, tw it's a one foot point two or something. I guess it's, you know, 14 inches long or whatever, but I just couldn't, I kept on thinking that the scan was wrong until I actually pulled out a measuring tape and realized the scan was right. And I was wrong, you know, cause I hadn't measured it, but I was just like how I felt about how long it was, but it wasn't. And so, so I think that the, you'll find that the scan is pretty accurate, but yeah, absolutely. We use known objects all the time to make sure, like if we know something's exactly like, um, I think they even sell them. We have like um, one centimeter by one centimeter cubes and also uh, one uh, decimeter by one decimeter cubes that I think you can find on Amazon. I, I, I know I, ha I used to have them. Because what we would do is we those are known measurements, and we would just throw them into the scene when we were doing the scan, and then we knew we knew what the scale was. Um, but you can also do that. Like I have a, um, I have this cutting pad that is one you know one inch grid, and so you can very quickly if you see any part of that grid, you can you can get the scale pretty quickly too. So there's a lot of things that you can do that 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 will work that way, and that's kind of how um, the Q clone works. Is that it has known things that are underneath it so it knows what the scale is. Next question. Stefan Fischer from Würzburg, Germany. What are the business models behind this technology besides producing software for it? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, yeah, so again, uh, what we use it for a lot is to, what one of the things that's happening right now is that, again, there was, uh, I know some of the people on the team at AWS, at a Amazon, or there were on the team that I mean, they're just taking every piece of furniture and digitizing it. And what they're doing is they're, you know, some of them are just building models of it, but it's easier. And as the photogrammetry gets better and as the cleanup gets faster and as the objects get more complex, it's easier to use the photogrammetry to do it. And you just take a bunch of photos and now you're getting, you know, again, it's going to be something that everybody's going to have to do in the next 10 years. It's like we, we used to say, you know, I remember when we, we used to say people are going to have to put images in web pages and they were like, oh, why would you need that? Why would you need a whole bunch of images? And then we were like, then eventually everyone's going to have to have videos of, the, of how their product works. And that took a little longer for people to get around. But uh, it's you're not going to be, you're going to really have a hard time competing in a crowded online market without your stuff in 3D, you know, and so, um, and being able to be part of that. And so I think that that's that, we use it a lot for previs. 
Um, it's used heavily in um, filmmaking where you need to build something out. I mean, so there's a lot of photogrammetry being done. Again, you look at something like building characters for, um, you know, building characters for um, uh, uh, games, like 2K games, that's all photogrammetry. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I see a, a use to create uh, brochures and uh, operation manuals and documentation for objects and equipment. Uh, so that instead of just the PDF that you get a link, a QR code to load the PDF into your phone or something, you get something with, with a rotatable 3D image of the object so that you can rot rotate it around, look at all the ports, zoom in on it. Look at the detail on the object uh, in a photo would be very helpful. I find that I'm frequently frustrated by brochures and stuff that just show the front of something and don't show all the I.O. ports on the back. And you have to dive deep into the operation manual to figure out what go, what the goes into and goes out as are. Uh, and having a 3D model, you could just rotate around and look at all the inputs and look at the labels on them uh, is a lot more interesting and a lot easier to access than tearing through a 30-page manual. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and you could imagine... Um, you know, going to a, a historical site, for instance, is one of the things that's why I was down there in Angkor Wat, is uh, go to a historical site, take all that photogrammetry, which would be really hard to do any measurements for. And here's the interesting thing is photogrammetry is only limited by the resolution of the images and how close you get to them. A LIDAR scan is really good at getting accurate knowledge. So when I'm specking something out, I want a LIDAR scan. Uh, but if I want detail, I want photogrammetry, or I want a mixture of the both, both managing structured light with which is LIDAR and unstructured light, which is um, photogrammetry, I can get incredible amounts of detail. So imagine taking all that detail and then making it look like it was built yesterday with all the color and all the other things. Um, those would be a lot easier to do with photogrammetry. And I think that we're going to be reproducing the past as well, you know, just like what Courtney's doing. And I think that, you know, one of the big mistakes Apple made a long time ago was they had this, um, you know, they created iBooks and books and then they just tried to compete with, and this is a very classic mistake, um, which is you don't have initial success. And so you just try to compete with the other people in the same market, but they have a very limited palette to work with. And so you limit your palette as opposed to creating a new market. And what Apple could have done 15 years ago was create, you know, push that new market, which is, you know, media rich books, you know, and they tried to show that. And the problem is they went to Pearson and all these, you know, old, old companies, and they produced what an old company would produce for media rich content. When what they really needed to do was really fund new ideas. And that's something, by the way, Epic does really well. They have this mega grant where they're just funding stuff. They're not worried about you. <laughs> not even worried. They're like, Here's a grant. We don't need money back. You know, we don't need to, <laughs> like, it's all just like, here, just, just try it. Um, and, and that's a, uh, it, it's an interesting business model there. So, so the, um, uh, anyway, so that's the, that is the, uh, you know, Epic's done a better job at that of pushing that forward. But I think Apple still sits there where they could be pushing books where, and, and again, I think what you're going to see is to take what Courtney was talking about and extend it. Imagine sending someone a, a keynote presentation that they can go through the keynote presentation and some of it plays video and some of it's you talking and some of it is a model and you can see that model and then just tap on it and it immediately projects in front of you from your iPad or your iPhone and you can move around it and look at it. And that could also through pages or other things become a, um, you know, a, a, a really 3D guide. And I think that we're getting very close. I mean, I started pitching these 30 years ago, so we've been thinking about it for a long time, but it's been hard to get all the tools in one place. 
And I think that we are painfully close. Next question. James Fosley from Minneapolis, Minnesota wants to know, is there a privacy concern when taking photos in our homes with these 3D apps? Yeah, you got to pay attention to what you're <laughs> when you're putting you're putting up in the cloud. It's not yours, so you'll notice that I'm pretty careful when I take pictures. I'm not showing anything that I don't want to show. Um, but yeah, you have to be careful. The uh, Polycam, I think, processes everything on the phone. I don't think it's actually uploading it, if I remember correctly. Um, it manages it there, so um, so I, I think it's a little less. But yeah, you should be careful when you're when you're doing those things. Next question. John Snyder, Reno, Nevada, asked, have you read the terms and conditions of Reality Scan? Being free, I'm wondering if Epic maintains ownership of the models. I don't know. I actually don't. I haven't been paying much attention to it. Again, I haven't been doing anything that I would consider serious work um, in it. So um, so I, I don't know. Uh, um, I haven't been uh, thinking of it that way. So yeah, I, it, it could be. But I, I right now, it's it's uploading to Sketchfab. It's like they don't really want to keep it. They're just trying to help you move through it. But of course, I think they own Sketchfab too. <laughs> so so anyway, so, so uh, but I think that there's some kind of usage. I know when you put it up on Sketchfab, it says we'll only keep it here unless you, if you publish it. So I publish everything. I don't care. I mean, I'm not taking photos of things like, if, things that I care about, I'm still modeling with Metashape. But this is a really great, uh, I, again, I would highly recommend it. It's just such a great app that you can just, that and it's free. Polycam is going to give you a demo and then it's going to cost money. So you have to kind of keep that in mind as well. Uh, last question for the first hour. And it's from Rob Collins in Kansas City, Missouri, asking which program would you use to scan small industrial objects for 3D part reference? Uh, yeah, I probably, if, so if I was really doing this and I was serious about it and I was going to do it with photogrammetry, um, I'd probably use Metashape with the, um, with the guide tracks, you know, the guide, the guide images. Um, and then what you want, what you need to do is get that a way to suspend that geometry up a bit, you know, so that it's not against the ground. Um, and then the, what you can do is take it with one camera and you can even do it with a turntable. Um, and there's a variety of turntable apps that will do this, but, but what I would recommend it, it, again, it depends on how many 3d part references you want to build. Um, and so if you're doing lots of those, um, then, um, what I would do is, is build an array of cameras that I, that it can all fire at the same time. You put the object in, hit go, and it just fires them all. And then, it, and then you pull it out again. And, and, and then, and then it, you can build again, because Metashape is scriptable. And I think, you know, reality captures as well is that you can take those, you can take all of those. They'll just feed into a system that then, um, will process them all and just pump 3D models out. So if you're really in, and now that's going to be rough reference, um, the person to talk to in our group that would take those and turn them into real mechanical CAD level production is Chris Fritchie. So you can find Chris Fritchie on, on, um, on our Discord. Chris is Rain Man modeler, <laughs> you know, like, like Rain Man level, Rain Man level modeler. Um, and he's... Uh, uh, so Chris Ritchie is the one you'd want to talk to about taking things that you might scan. And this is a perfect example of where you might use photogrammetry is that you're sitting where you're at in Kansas City. Chris is in Texas. You can be sitting there doing all these photogrammetry and reference models. You can be emailing them to Chris. He would go in and do all the CAD stuff and build build it out to a a true model that you can use that's going to look good on every edge and doesn't have any rough edges and so on and so forth. And that might be, but his job will be a lot faster with an accurate 3D, um, an accurate 3D model that's generated from photogrammetry at, at fairly high detail is going to make Chris uh, 
more accurate and, and much faster and less expensive for you to, to have him model this. So that, that'd be something to kind of think of. But he's, he's a good example within our group. And maybe I'll do a, maybe I'll try to talk Chris into some little test projects so we can show how that all works. So um, yeah, there you go. All right. Uh, that was a good, good fun uh, second hour. <laughs> so um, a reminder that uh, um, uh, Sam is uh, Sam Sam Kukaiko is is from uh, Zoom is going to be doing behind the scenes and that and the link is in the event chat um, that starts right now. So um, definitely think about jumping in. And I believe we also here in inside of our um, and I don't have the I got to figure out somewhere I can have announcements. Um, the uh, but I, I believe we have is are we doing eCam? Do we know? Does anyone know? Can someone talk? No, no eCam. So we're taking that off. So, so yeah. So the Zoom behind the scenes is happening right now, and otherwise, um, we're going to jump. I want to thank, uh, thank. Great questions. I was a little concerned we wouldn't get we wouldn't get very many questions on the reality scan scan stuff because I wasn't sure how many people knew about it. I highly recommend checking it out. Great questions. Uh, great, great to dig into it, and we'll be talking more about this. So my recommendation is to download, download these tools, play with these tools, think about the questions. About every, at least every month, we're going to talk about photogrammetry. It's that important. <laughs> so, so, so we're going to, and, and the idea is the, the best thing for you to do. I, I've been, I was talking to someone about it and I hadn't really thought about it in this way um, until now or until recently. For a million years, we've learned how to do things in one certain way. People say, well, people learn differently. Well, some people are better at learning in the new ways, in the modern ways of text you know, and, and imagery. But the way we learned for a million years was that we watched someone who was better at it than we were. Then we tried, and then we asked questions. So that's what we did today. You watched me do a little bit of it. Unfortunately, not as much as I would have liked to show you. Then you ask questions, then you go do it. And then you come back and watch and ask questions again. You know, watch, ask questions, do, watch, ask questions, do, watch, ask questions, do. So when we show you this stuff, my recommendation is now that we've, you've watched a little of it and asked questions, just go do it and fail. Just fail, just fail, fail, fail. Ask questions in our, in Discord. And then you'll have a bunch of rich questions the next time we talk about photogrammetry in January to um, ask more questions that because you've done it, because you have real world failure. <laughs> and when you have a failure, you now have a little hook that's ready to put knowledge into, <laughs> you know, or onto a little hole that that, fail, that, that failure created. So go out there and, and try to use it. I highly recommend it. Anyway, great questions from the producers. Thank you so much. And thanks to the, thanks to our panelists. Can't do this without you. And, um, and every day, everyone's showing up here, uh, answering your questions. And then, and then of course, thanks to the great backend team that's constantly making this all work and putting up with me complaining about like, why, why haven't you cut to this in this last quarter second? <laughs> so anyway, uh, killer, killer team. Great team. Thanks for your, uh, your patience with me. Um, and uh, yeah, now we're going to go ahead and jump into after hours. So man, that makes me want to structure some light. Structure the light. I got to put somewhere, I got to find out where I can put. I'm going to talk to someone about giving us some server space so I can start putting up uh, bigger geometry sets so people can play with it. Bruh, do you even structure your light? <laughs> His light is so unstructured. Oh my God. It's got a lot of detail, but you don't know exactly where, you know, where everything is. It's all pixels and no vectors. <laughs> yeah, I had to roto something recently and I was like, 
I was like, all oh, those years of having to trace logos comes back as, as a value, you know, hours and hours of it. I was like, yes. I guess Bezier to the max. Yeah, exactly. I'll be seeing Anchor Watt for the next three days. Oh, there, we took him out of screen share. There we go. All right, see you later.